Well, I want to start out this evening uh, showing you something, just a, a brief illustration here. You know, sometimes when, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we can go through life as Christians, and we can go through there, but not with a lot of joy, not with a lot of fire in our, in our lives. And uh, I've got here what's called a Rubens tube. Basically, we've got a speaker on one end, and the speaker basically puts the sound through the, the pipe, I've also got some propane coming in here that allows there to be some flames. And this is the way it is. That, that propane almost represents the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit being in our lives, we can see that there is evidence, there is a flame burning. But the problem is, as many of us are satisfied with just that. And for me, I want more than just to be saved. I want to be able to live a life worthy of the calling. I want to be able to go out and evangelize for, for Christ. And the creation message for me has been something that has taken a life that looks like this and made it a life that's, that's a lot more exciting, a life that is a lot more, well, uh, I guess, on fire. Watch what happens when we put a little bit of music here to, through this. just the Rubens too. But you see, this is what I'm hoping is going to happen to you tonight, that you're going to go from something like this to something that's alive, that's something that's excited, someone who is ready to go out and preach the gospel, knowing that we can stand on the word of God and that it is true, that we can be faithful to that because God has been faithful to us. What I might do is see if maybe a couple of you can maybe uh, come and move this out of the way, and I will just continue here while you move that out. I want you to look at this picture here. What's missing in this picture? Now, this is a, something that uh, Ken Ham's answers in Genesis had, but I think it's a great illustration. What's missing here? Just in case some of you are a little bit tired here tonight, maybe I'll help you out. How many of you thought it was A? Or perhaps B? C? Maybe D? Or maybe some of you even thought E? There you go. Yeah, most of you thought E. Some of you, maybe even something I haven't even shown you here, F. Well, guess what? You're all wrong. Nothing was missing. You see, it was drawn this way. It was drawn the way it was meant to be drawn, but I brainwashed you. Yeah, you guys have all been brainwashed. I guarantee it. Every one of you have been brainwashed. I mean, think of it. You guys probably think sports are important because they help build what? 
character. Right, sports helps build character. Do you guys believe that lie? Really? Sports builds character? Guys, if sports builds character, then the NFL and the NBA ought to be teaming with it. Sports does not build character. God's word builds character. That's why in the NFL and the NBA, it's Christian athletes that are the ones that have character, aren't they? Yeah. Sports doesn't build it. God's word does. I'm not against sports. I'm just against saying that sports builds character. I mean, it can help build discipline. It can help build teamwork. Absolutely. But it doesn't build character. Only God's word can do that. All of us have been brainwashed. Prehistoric. You name something prehistoric for me. You'd probably say something like a dinosaur or a woolly mammoth. Well, guys, no. There is no such thing as prehistoric. Pre means before. Historic means history. There is nothing before history. My Bible records it from the start. No such thing as prehistoric. That word did not even exist in our early dictionaries. It wasn't even there. That is a brainwashing term. Or they'll brainwash you and they'll say, well, uh, do you think humans are still evolving? Those are actually questions called critical thinking questions in our textbooks. Do you think humans are still evolving? Well, if you say yes, you've been brainwashed. If you say no, you've been brainwashed. You see, there's no right answer to that question. That's like me saying, hey, Pastor Miller, have you stopped taking illegal drugs yet? (laughs) See, if he says yes, it means he used to take drugs. If he says no, I'm taking drugs. There is no right answer to that question. When they ask you the question, do you think humans are still evolving? Yes means they are. No means they once were. That does not teach your children how to think. It tells them what to think. And this is how they brainwash you. Likewise, how do we get brainwashed? Because of what I've just shown you. I gave you a presupposition that something was missing. You therefore put on a pair of glasses to come up with an interpretation based on the question, what was missing? Your interpretation was totally consistent with your glasses. It was totally consistent with the presupposition. The problem is it was just totally wrong, wasn't it? Yeah, totally wrong. I made you think the way I wanted you to think about the evidence. When I asked you the question, what was missing, you should have said this. You asked me a question, what's missing? I should question this question. But most of us don't even know it's a question, let alone to question the question, let alone to ask the right question to ask about the question. Did you follow that? Yeah. Well, put another way is this. They find a new rock in the paper. They say it's millions of years old. And you go, wow. Don't go, wow. Ask yourself, what questions were used or asked to get that interpretation? And if you don't know what questions were asked, how do you know what questions to ask to question their question? To see if they're asking the right questions. And the more we study, the more we see we need to ask some questions. It's going to be a long night, isn't it? No. I won't confuse you anymore. A practical example of this is missing links. What do they find? Nothing. Hence the word missing, right? Yeah, you see, when I asked you the question what was missing, you put on a pair of glasses to try and find it. When they say there's a missing link, you're putting on a pair of glasses to try and go find something that's missing. What if nothing's missing? then there's no missing link. This is sad, but this is what's going on. We're being duped by little things like this. I want to describe here this evening a theory based on what the Bible says. It's called the firmament or the canopy theory. Now, I am not going to be dogmatic about this. I want you to know that what I'm describing here tonight 
Science does, can, can support it, but it can't prove it. Likewise, the Bible can't prove exactly what I'm going to say in all of it because we're adding science into it. But nonetheless, you put science and the Bible together, there's a nice little theory that comes about that does seem to fit science and answer all these so-called contradictions that we see or problems in the Bible. There are some that do not like the canopy theory out there. One of the problems is we don't know the heat. It might get too hot. But some think there could have been some differences in the sun or maybe there's some things we just don't know about. You know, it could just be a divine thing. Who knows? But nonetheless, uh, answers in Genesis for a while kind of abandoned the canopy theory. Now some are bringing it in. Some like uh, Larry Vardaman, he still believes that there's a good possibility that the, you know, the canopy theory is there. We just don't have all the answers to it. But none of them do. We don't have all the answers for any theory. I think this is the one that answers the most questions. So I don't want to fall into the same evolutionary trap that many of my evolutionary friends do and say, you know, this is the way it was. You know, I don't know. I can only give you a theory. You decide, you do more research, but I think that as you'll see, as we put these things together, it makes sense. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, it tells us that on the second day of creation, God separates the waters. And he does so horizontally and vertically. Horizontally, he creates dry land and water. The word there for land is a single dry land mass. I do believe in Pangaea, that single land mass. He also separates the waters vertically. He puts water up above in the sky and water underneath the ground. You might picture it looking something like this here, where you have this canopy, this firmament. The Bible calls it rakia in Hebrew. It implies a, a crystallized, flattening out, stretching out aspect. Again, I don't know if this is exactly what it looked like, but it might have looked something like this. I don't know if it was water vapor, liquid water, ice crystals. Josephus, a historian around the time of Christ, says that this was a crystalline firmament. Again, right or wrong, I don't know. But from a cross section of the earth, it would look something like this. You'd have the earth, the waters underneath the earth, the crust of the earth above those waters, and then you see the firmament up above that. Another question that people have is, how could this thing be held up? Well, one of the ways it may have been held up is by a process called superconductive material. You can see here on this little video, this is showing you superconductive material. Sometimes at our science camps we will do this. Take superconductive material and superfreeze it using liquid nitrogen. Hydrogen, which is in water, H2O, becomes superconductive when it is supercooled. Now it's not magnetism. As you can see, he can take this and he can put it at different locations above the magnet. He can take it at an angle above the magnet. He can put it off to the side and it will twist and it it locks on an axis. They even call it locking. This is also known as the Meisner effect. It's being used today for superconducting coils for trains in Japan, things like that. But we're, we're trying to find new areas of where this might work. But what I want to do is not focus on the technology as much as show you that perhaps this is how the firmament could have been held up above the earth. All the waters that came from the flood certainly didn't come from the the firmament. But what we would see is the earth is like a big magnet. Hydrogen in water, superfreeze it, which it would be way up on top in those higher atmospheric areas, could become superconductive. Therefore, 
You can put this upside down, right side up, it makes no difference. That that firmament could have simply been locked in place above the earth as a big magnet and held there. I don't know. It's just one possible explanation of how maybe it was up there. It's not crazy to propose such a thing could happen because we have planets today like Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, all have types of canopies over their planets. It's just that this one had water. That's all we're saying. Now, with that firmament there, however, we would have a very different world to live in, a different atmosphere. Because it would be, first of all, like a greenhouse. So you would have a subtropical climate, something like the Caribbean year-round. There would be seasonal changes, no question, but they wouldn't be as drastic as what we would see here in the Midwest. We also know that the Bible says there was no rain before Noah's flood, it seems. In Genesis 2, verse 5 and 6, it says the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. Well, how did everything get watered if there's no rain? Well, look what verse 6 says. Streams came up from the surface of the earth. And they watered the whole ground, the whole surface of the ground. It sounds like underground aquifers were bubbling up and watering everything. By the way, that is just what Genesis describes and shows us in the Garden of Eden. There was this huge aquifer, and from it, the center of it, In the center of the garden, an aquifer bubbles up and waters the whole surface. There are four rivers that break off from this one aquifer. That is a big aquifer to have four rivers break off from it. So the description is even seen in the Garden of Eden. We also know that there would be no solar radiation. Water filters out the harmful rays of the sun. So you could go outside and not get a sunburn. Because you'd be protected from that short wave radiation. We would also have more oxygen and air pressure. More air pressure because NASA has measured atmospheric gases in outer space 200 miles. Those gases would have been compressed underneath this canopy, increasing the pressure. We believe about twice the atmospheric pressure. We also would have had about 28 to 30 percent oxygen compared to today's 16 to 19 percent. Now, most of our textbooks will tell us 21 percent, but the textbooks seem, uh, or the scientists seem to be in the 16 to 19 percent. Going back to this no rain here, real quick, I want you to also see something here. I've got another demonstration that I'd like to show you. Um, what, what happens with pressure? Why would we have no rain? Because no high and low air pressure systems could form with that, which would not allow clouds to form, which would not allow rain to form. Uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to grab a two-liter bottle and a little bike tire pump. I'm going to stick this bike tire pump onto the two-liter bottle to increase the pressure here. So as I do that, watch what will happen here. There's a high pressure in here. Now when pressure changes, watch what happens. Clouds form, right? If you don't have high and low air pressure systems, you're not going to have clouds forming. That may be why we don't see clouds forming or rain in the pre-flood atmosphere. Just again, a possibility is all. Changes in pressure create that cloud formation. I want you to know that even an evolutionist believes what I have just told you. 
If you read in your textbooks, they will tell you that billions of years ago, for millions of years, there was no rain on the earth. They will tell you there was a tropical paradise at the time of the dinosaurs. That's why you see the vegetation you do in the fossil record. They will tell you that we had radiation. I agree. I'm just saying we were protected from it. They will tell you that we had more pressure in oxygen. Why? Well, because we find fossilized amber, which is tree sap that has gone down the tree slowly. Here is some amber that I have. Sometimes you will see inside air bubbles, even insects in there. We simply go in and measure what's inside those air bubbles, and we see more oxygen. That's the atmosphere that was captured as it would roll down the side of a tree. That's all that happens. Here's another one. And isn't that crazy? This mosquito forgot to evolve in 144 million years, they say that this thing is. Looks just like the ones we have today. So I agree with what they're saying. It's, the only difference is this, the timing and the cause. They're saying this atmosphere was millions and billions of years ago, and they don't have any idea as to why. I'm saying it was about 6,000 years ago. And the reason why is because of this firmament. That's why the world is the way it was before the flood. So again, it's a theory, but it, it's one that seems to fit. They, have, they agree with the science. They agree with the, the, the conditions. It's just the timing and the cause that are different. In Genesis chapter 7, it tells us that on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. At the time of the flood, those fountains of the great deep burst forth. That's where the floodwaters came from, most of it. And then it says the floodgates of heaven. The Hebrew there is like a dam breaking. Those waters came down in the form of rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Don't you think that with the fountains of the great deep breaking open, you're going to have all kinds of volcanoes and earthquakes going on? That'll be important later. It would explain why there was no rainbow. If there was no rain before Noah's flood, no rainbow, right? That makes sense. So where did the floodwaters of Noah come from? The waters above came down. The waters underneath came up. It wasn't just rain. It, most of it probably came from the waters underneath. You might picture it looking something like this. When the continents split, the water shooting up into the sky, causing plate tectonics. The continents splitting. Maybe this mid-oceanic ridge is where the fountains of the great deep were breaking open. There's even secular science supporting this pre-flood environment. We see in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Some people think that this could be plate tectonics. I don't believe it is. Because this is after the Tower of Babel, well after the flood. There's no reason to say that it could happen at that time. I believe this is actually taking place in post-Ice Age. I believe this is probably what happened. It would make sense scientifically and biblically. You see, if you would lower the oceans today by 150 feet, there is enough water that would be taken up in ice in the Ice Age. Lower it 150 feet, continents today are connected. Just by lowering it 150 feet. So if the Ice Age was right after the flood, which we will get to in a moment, I believe it was, 
the oceans would be lowered, these land bridges would connect continents, that would allow the animals after the flood to be able to get two different continents, as well as people. God said, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and they decide that they want to go to the Tower of Babel and stay there, so that's what they do. God wasn't pleased, they were trying to worship the heavens, they weren't spreading out like he said. So he confuses their languages and they spread out. How did they get from one continent to the other? Probably using those land bridges. And then, time-wise, this would be about perfect. In the days of Peleg, perhaps that ice age was going away. The ice was melting, the oceans are rising up, and the earth would be divided population-wise so that they couldn't get back and do what they were doing at the Tower of Babel. And this explains why we would find pyramids and things like that on more than one continent. Because that information from the Tower of Babel that was common was taken with them. But in any case, the earth was divided at the time of Peleg. Now, the Tower of Babel is very important for us to understand a lot of different things. One of which is that all of these Stone Age, Bronze Age, you know, Iron Age type things that we see in archaeology... Did you know that that has never been found anywhere complete? We don't see it nice and neat anywhere. What we see is a piece of it over here and a piece of it over there, and they just interpret it that way. But this is what I would expect to see if the Bible was true. You see, if you're going to take and take all of you guys here, and we're going to divide you up into groups of five or six, and then nobody else is on the world, and we're going to take you and send you off there. And by the way, you can't drive. You're going to have to walk or you know, take carts and things like that. Chances are you're not going to take your big screen TV, will you? No, you're going to have to carry this stuff. So what you're going to do is you're going to take only the necessary things. Hammers probably will stay back too. Because you know what? A rock will do just fine. And that's what they did. They traveled and as they went places, they would use rocks for hammers. And then when they left, you know what? Let's just leave them there. I don't want to carry rocks with me. And, and so they would leave evidence of what is called the Stone Age. They weren't smart enough to develop tools. It wasn't that they were too dumb to do that. It was they were too smart to carry them. Okay? And then what's going to happen is, in some cases, they'll just live in caves and things like that. People say, cavemen. You know, what, hey, well, you know what? David was a caveman. He lived in caves while he was hiding out. Hunters were cavemen. There are cavemen in Australia today. They just have TVs in their caves. It just fit their needs. Cavemen went, you know, stupid people sitting around fires going, fire, fire. No, they were very intelligent. The caves just fit their needs, that's all. As they are moving along, the earth was you know, plentiful at that time, and so these people would probably just eat what the trees and the things like that would give them. They're just going to, to, to eat what the land produces. And so what you would have is evidence of a hunter-and-gatherer mentality. Not because they were too stupid to plant a garden, they were too smart. Why weed a garden when the land is producing it for you? And then they're going to continue to move on. Eventually, they'll grow and they're going to settle in a place and then they will plant a garden. And then what's going to happen is maybe some of you took information about how to make metals with you. Maybe some of you were more peaceful than others. And so you'd have these other people that had metals come in and conquer these, this city that didn't have metals. And it would leave evidence of a more intelligent civilization on top of a less intelligent civilization. Well, it wasn't that one was more intelligent or less intelligent one just maybe had, uh, had different kinds of technology, or in some cases, some just maybe were more violent. Others didn't feel they needed swords and whatever. Who knows? But the point is, is that the Bible explains why you would see some of those things. 
And it would also explain why in some cases you see what look like Stone Age on top of the others. It, it doesn't fit nicely. If evolution is true, it should be nice and neat all over the place, but it isn't like that. So the Tower of Babel explains that as well. It says in Psalms 24, verses 1 through 2, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world that they dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, he established it upon the floods. He created this world upon waters, which by the way is the opposite of what evolution says. Waters don't come till later. But the Bible says God created it upon the waters. He stretched out the earth above the waters in Psalm 136. By the way, this is also the stretching out. He also says many times in Scripture that he stretched out the heavens. That's why we get this big bang idea, is we see the red shift of light. The red shift is moving away from us. Okay? Well, that means that we must be at the center, first of all, which doesn't seem to make much sense for an evolutionist because it seems that we are at a special location then. But... I don't believe that it's evidence that the Big Bang, you had this atomic particle blowing up, and that's why you're seeing things moving away. We're seeing this because God stretched out the heavens. And that's why we see things at the redshift. So you want to know distant starlight. There's a number of different explanations of why we see starlight that should be millions of light years away. One possibility of many is that if you take a balloon, put two dots on it, now blow the balloon up. Those two dots now stretch out, get further apart very quickly. I believe that God created everything closer and then he stretched out the heavens. That's why we see the red shift of light. Like I said, there are other scientific explanations. We've got some DVDs on our website that will go through more of that. But just to give you a little taste of that here for now. Nonetheless, the earth was created above the waters. I believe in Noah's flood. I believe that it covered the highest mountain by 20 feet of water. But there are liberal theologians out there who are trying to tell you, oh, no, that couldn't happen. There's not enough water on earth to cover the highest mountain by 20 feet. Where'd all the water go? Please, as a Christian, don't go and tell people that you believe Noah's flood was a global flood because you're going to look silly and and they're not going to listen to the gospel then. Guys, if the Bible says it, I believe it. And I'm going to stand on the word rather than your scientific philosophies. And just because you don't understand how God did something doesn't mean he couldn't do it. It just means he's smarter than you. Would you do me a favor? If you don't understand how God did something or you know why he did something, would you at least give the Holy Spirit the honor of being a little more learned than you are? Yeah, I'm glad that I can't explain how God did everything he did, why God did everything he did, because if I could, you know what that would make me? God. And I want to serve a God that's so much bigger than this little pea brain right here. So where did the water go? Well, before I answer that question, I want you to know that NASA is proposing that there was a global flood on the planet Mars. Now you tell me how much water has been found on Mars. Not a liquid drop, huh? Yet they're saying there was a flood on a planet that doesn't have any water. Yet when I say there was a flood on Earth that is 70% water, I'm crazy? It sounds to me like there's a bias here, don't you think? I do believe that there was water on Mars, but only in this sense right here. That's the only water on Mars I believe in. Now, by the way, it is possible that there could have been water in the past on Mars. That's not scientifically... uh, you know, unreliable. My point is simply that how come I can't propose a flood here? 
How come they're so adamant that there was one there but not one here? Okay, comets could have hit Mars, causing water, causing floods, things like that. There are explanations, but we're not going to get into that here for now. But if Noah's flood was just a local flood, like these liberal theologians want to try and do, because they want to believe in the Bible, you know, so they say, well, it wasn't a global flood, it was just local over in Mesopotamia somewhere. Well, if that's the case, why didn't God just say, hey, Noah, move? (laughs) Wouldn't that be easier? Why did he take birds on the ark? They could have flapped their wings to get to the next dry hillside. And the rainbow God put in the sky, wouldn't that make him a liar? He said, I'll never do such a thing again. And yet we've had that tsunami, Katrina, and many other local floods. Hurricane Sandy. That would make him a liar. And the Bible says in 2 Peter, it connects Noah's flood to judgment at the end of the world. If it was just a local flood, maybe a local judgment when the Lord returns, huh? No, it was a global flood. Do you know that the Hebrew and Greek even have special terms, words for Noah's flood, Mabul, Kataklusmos, to separate it from other floods? This was a global flood. Not to mention, how could a you know, local flood cover the highest mountain by 20 feet? Gravity would not allow that to happen. The waters are going to pile up on top of these mountains? No, they're going to go down, fill the valley, and it would no longer be a local flood. The Bible tells me where the waters went, where we should get all of our answers. Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9 says this, that the waters stood above the mountains. The mountains rose up, the valley sank down, and God set a boundary that those waters should never pass again. Doesn't that sound like plate tectonics to you? Mountains rising up, valleys sinking down, and then God setting a boundary in the oceans that those waters cannot pass anymore? It sounds like that to me. And by the way, the Garden of Eden was a mountain, yes. There were mountains before Noah's flood. It's just that those mountains weren't very high. They weren't as tall as ours are today. Do you know that if you would level the earth out today so that the oceans were were not as deep and the mountains weren't as high roughly smooth the earth out, you would have enough water right now on earth to cover the entire thing by a mile and three quarters of water. Plenty of water on earth to have a global flood. So where did all the waters go? They went into the ocean basins. Now, how many races of people do you have here in your town? How many races do you think that you have? Would it surprise you if I only told you there was one race? Yeah, just one. I know you guys think I'm crazy, but you know what? You don't drive out of town and see a black cow, a white cow, and a red cow and see, say, hey, look, three different races of cows out there, do you? No, they're cows. Likewise, I don't see different colors of people as different races. They're people, the human race. We all come from one blood, it says in the book of Acts. We are all the human race. You all come from Adam. Next time you go to the doctor's office and say, you know, they ask you what race you are, put down Adams. It'll do. (laughs) Now, there are genetic reasons they ask you what race you are because some races that we call races are more prone to certain diseases and whatnot. But that's just genetics. It isn't truly a different race. You all come from the same people. Now, the Tower of Babel explains why this was. Remember I said God spread people out. That means isolated gene pools took place. 
When you isolate gene pools, you know what happens? Dominant physical features come about. When you go to Russia, do you know what people look like today? (laughs) Russians. When you go to China, what do they look like? Chinese. When you go to America, what do we look like? Who knows? There's no American look. No, we are the melting pot. People have come from all over the world. And as a result, we have mixed up the gene pool and there is no dominant physical feature anymore. The Tower of Babel explains that. Now, I'll prove to you we're not different races. Here are pictures of twins. One is white, one is black, born from the same white parents. And DNA proves it was not the milkman. They are the parents. Every one of these listed on the right are examples of the same thing happening. White parents having black children. Even black parents have had white children. So it is not a different race if you can have two children that are appearing to be two different races from the same parents. Not a chance. Another thing we need to look at is how could people live to be 900 years before Noah's flood? That's what the Bible says. Look at this graph. Everybody's living over 900 years before the flood. And then uh, there's one guy that drops down there, but that's Enoch. He went to heaven alive. People say, oh, you can't believe this. They counted time differently back then. Each year was only a month long. Oh, then Enoch had a baby when he was five. Yeah, no. And besides, the Bible tells me how they counted time. God created the sun, the moon, and the stars for signs, times, and seasons, didn't he? So the solar calendar is just as accurate back then as it is today. As a matter of fact, one of my DVDs is called uh, The Stars, God's Word in the Sky. Uh, And it talks about the sun and the moon and the stars being created for signs, times, and seasons. Very clearly, guys. If you really look at that, there is no question. I mean, did God ever use the stars for signs in the past? Yes, he did, didn't he? As a matter of fact, the star of Bethlehem? You ever wonder why those you know, magi were sitting out there, hmm, I think that means that the king of the Jews is born. What made them think that? Well, if you go back 400 years earlier, we see a guy named Daniel who is made chief of the Magi after his God delivers him and spares his life, saves him. I believe Daniel taught these people this. They say, you watch. You wait for this, and someday it's going to happen. And sure enough, it did. There are all kinds of things. Did you know the Bible says that God calls each star by name? Did you also know that we have the names of all the stars recorded in ancient history? Every ancient civilization recorded the names of those stars. Do you suppose the names they recorded are the same names that God named them? I believe that they are for the most part. Let me give you a biblical proof of this first. Romans 10 says this, Consequently, faith comes through hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Did Israel not hear? Not hear what? Well, the word of Christ that works faith in people's hearts. Did Israel not hear? Of course they did. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Whose voice? Whose words gave Israel the word of Christ? Well, must be the prophets, right? No, that's a quote from Psalm 19, which basically says, The heavens declare God's glory. Night after night they pour forth speech, they display knowledge. There is no place where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So the heavens declare God's glory. The stars are proclaiming his handiwork. 
It's the stars, the creation, that proclaim the message of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying creation saves you, and I'm not saying it replaces the Bible. I'm just simply saying this, that God chose you before the creation of the world. Why would he not basically put his gospel message within his creation? And as you examine these names, I believe that he did. One example, we have Virgo the Virgin. I mean, have you guys ever gone out there at night and you say, hey, I see a woman up there, and she looks like a virgin? I mean, how do they get this stuff? It isn't because it looks like it. It's because of the names of the stars that you have this. Well, interestingly, the brightest star in Virgo, in that constellation, is in her arm, and it's called the branch. So they put a picture of a branch in her hand. That's why it's there. You don't see a branch. It's the star name that gives you that. So she's holding a branch. In Hebrew, they call it semek is the name for that branch because that's the word for branch in Hebrew. However, it's only used four times in the Bible. There are other words for branch that could be used like twig, stick, you know, leaf and, and log, those kind of things. But, but this is the word that is used only in reference to Jesus Christ as the coming branch. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. So why do you have a virgin up in the sky bringing forth a branch? a Semek, a Messiah. Now, Answers in Genesis does not really care for the gospel and the star presentation, and I agree with them. Because what has happened is there are some people out there who have taken this way too far, and they try and use this to tell fortune, Christian fortune-telling almost. When's the Antichrist coming, and this is going to happen, in, and they're trying to read the stars. No, the Bible is what we have. And so I agree with some of those issues. But if we just take it from a biblical perspective, there is a lot of wonderful stuff that you can see with that. Over and over in the sky, what you will see is a God figure crushing the head of an evil figure. For example, Ophiuchus is standing there. He is standing on a scorpion, crushing its head with its right foot. Its left foot is getting stung by the scorpion. The star in the heel that's getting stung is named the bruised. Hmm. He will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel over and over. That's what you see in the sky. And the star names say that this Ophiuchus is a godly guy. This one comes to rule. He's the judge. But the scorpion has names like the subtle, the perverse, the enemy put down, things like that. And so clearly it's a good guy taking care of a bad guy. So this is the type of thing that you would see. But anyway, so the stars were created for a purpose. A lot of people look at that and say, what are those stars? I mean, that's a lot of empty, wasted space. If, you know, God created the world, that's, what a waste. It's not a waste. It proclaims his glory. But then the flood comes there in red, and boom, immediately, drastically, something happened at the time of the flood to cause the lifespan of people to drop. What was it? Well, I think it's a combination of things. A combination. You can't just put it all on one. The bottom graph shows at what age they're having kids, and again, at the time of the flood, boom, it drops. They can't have kids at old ages. Now, there's a couple that drop uh, or pop up there, but that's Abraham, Sarah. You know, they, they had children, and it was a miracle to have them at that age. Something happens at the time of the flood to cause the lifespan of people to drop. What was it? One of the reasons, I believe, is the solar radiation. If you look on a geographical scale, near the equator, people live shorter lifespans than they do if they live near the poles. That's just a scientific fact. 
Because near the equator, we have more intense radiation bombarding our bodies. That could be why this village here in Ecuador, 25% of their population lived to be over 100 years of age. 25%. But they're in a deep ravine that receives very little sunlight every day. Mountains on both sides. They don't get very much sunlight. Could that be part of the reason? I think it could be part of it. I think there are genetic things that have changed because of the harmful rays of the sun. Because, you see, after the flood came, the firmament comes down, and the radiation of the sun starts messing things up. Today, people who have longevity in their family lines, studies have been done on them, and they see on their DNA, they have these things called telomeres. They're little tails. Every time your cell divides, that tail gets a little shorter. In other words, then, what we see is that people who have longevity have longer tails. Their cells can divide longer. They're going to live longer. Genetically, we've lost this. Now, people always ask me, too, where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married his sister because he was able. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> guys, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Who is he going to marry? Well, a sister. The Bible says in Genesis 5 and that they had other, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. It's just that Cain and Abel are the ones that are listed to follow the line of Christ. And later Seth, to follow the line of Christ. But nonetheless, there are other sons and daughters. They married a sister. Today we go, oh, gross. Well, yeah, it is gross today, and it's unsafe today. Because today, a brother and a sister, you have the same genetic mistakes. If you would get married and have children, you multiply those genetic mistakes and your kids come out funny. And I don't mean comedians. It's physically unsafe. They can be mentally retarded, physically deformed. But Adam and Eve, they were created with a perfect, pure gene pool. Therefore, their children, I believe even after the fall, had a very pure gene pool because it's the radiation that messes that up. So what we see is that Cain and Abel could marry a sister, their gene pool would be pure, and you're not going to have physical problems. And it would have been socially acceptable back then. But by the time the flood comes, the firmament comes down, the radiation messes up the gene pool, and you give that a few hundred years, you get to the time of Leviticus, after the flood, and we see God stepping in and saying, no more incest, because by that time, it had been dangerous as the gene pool gets corrupted. Prior to the book of Leviticus, it was okay. But God stops it at that point. Here we see the Dickerson children. I took this picture from a Canadian newspaper from the 1950s. These kids became famous because their parents kept them indoors for 11 years, would not allow them to go outside during the day. Social services got wind of this. They came in and they took the children away from the parents. Doctors examined them, found them to be healthy, except for one problem, the age of these kids. This little girl, she's 13 years old. The boy is 15, and the older girl, 18 years old. None of them had gone through puberty. Doctors didn't know why. I can't tell you why. All I can say is it's interesting that they were kept out of the sun for 11 years. I can tell you this, though, scientifically. Any of you like to get a good suntan in the summer? A few of you out there? Well, you might think you look good now, but wait till you get to be 40. You might look something like this. It is a scientific fact that the sun causes us to age and wrinkle up much faster. You go to Australia, you'll see that people over there, many of them look older than what they really are because of that radiation from the sun that's there, that hole in the ozone. 
Yeah. You go, the best thing that you can do, if you want to look better when you're older, stay out of the sun. So much of it anyway. You need some of it. Vitamin D. But you know what's interesting is that we even find bones of Neanderthal, that beetle-browed, bow-legged, hunched-over guy in the fossil record they used to say was a missing link. Now they say he was completely human, but he, he was hunched over because he had a bone disease called rickets. Rickets is caused from lack of sunlight and cold, damp climates. Yeah, cold, damp climates, lack of sunlight, that sounds like they might have been living through the Ice Age, which we will get to in a moment. But before I look at that, I want you to see that we have sent creationists around the world examining the skulls of these bones, and in every case they've been put together incorrectly. You see, they are child-sized skulls, which would indicate that they are children, but the wear on the teeth and the angle of the jaw says it's an adult. So when they put them together in the museums, they cheat, ignore that evidence, trying to make it look like a child. When the evidence says this is an adult, what is an adult doing looking like a child? Well, think about it. Some of you older people here, you know who you are. If God was going to come to you and say, I'm going to let you live another hundred years, what would you say? (laughs) Oh, God, please, no. (laughs) Not in these bodies. That would be a curse, wouldn't it? So if you're going to live to be 900, don't you think you're going to have to mature at a slower rate? just like there seems to be fossil evidence supporting? Yeah. As a matter of fact, even the Chinese people say that people used to live to be a thousand years of age. So it's not just the Bible saying that this happened in the past. How could it happen without our world being different before the flood? It seems like the firmament is a good possible explanation. This is fossil evidence saying that people were maturing at a slower rate. Dentists today say that one of the reasons that we have problems with our wisdom teeth is because we mature too fast. Wouldn't it be great to, you know, have those things coming in when you were like 400 years old, you could still eat those dino burgers? It'd be great. And as far as the Ice Age goes, we have the best explanation for the Ice Age. Volcanoes. When volcanoes go off, they put gases into the atmosphere. Those gases cause colder climates. That is a scientific fact. We have observed this today. We see here in Tambora, 1815, this volcano in Indonesia, when it erupted, it gave us two years without summer. One volcano did that. Can you imagine what Noah's flood could do then with the fountains of the great deep breaking open all over the place? You would have an ice age that, crunching the number, says would last 500 to 700 years. And it could explain why we see other crazy things like the woolly mammoth. We find the woolly mammoth standing perfectly frozen, upright. The food that it's eating still remaining in its teeth, undigested. How does that happen? We can't just freeze an elephant. First of all, it doesn't fit in the freezer. Second of all, even if you did, only 12 inches of it about would freeze in a day's time. Then the heat would get locked in on the inside, and it would rot the insides out. To do so, to freeze an elephant, you need temperatures, they say, of about 300 degrees below zero. We don't get temperatures like that on Earth. So, how could this happen? It speaks of a catastrophe, something we don't see. Some proposed comets hit the Earth and and snowed comets because they have temperatures of that cold. But you don't need that. All you need is a flood. 
Noah's flood would cause temperature changes that we don't see on earth today. They'd be standing up because silt and whatnot would get blown up against them and they would just kind of sit down on that. And we don't know for sure because they're not all froze. Some of them are buried in sediments and whatnot. So not all of them froze, but those that did are kind of a mystery. And we can find you know, teeth that are huge. Here's a, a woolly mammoth tooth that I have. Okay, part of the jawbone on it, and the tooth up here, some of the root. These things are large animals. You can't just freeze one quickly. This speaks of a catastrophe, something that only Noah's flood could have provided. Well, it doesn't take a long period to have an ice age either. Here's a lost squadron of airplanes that landed on the glaciers in World War II. We found them 48 years later under 263 feet of ice, just in 48 years. Now, I did a debate at Minot State University, and this professor was telling me, you can't tell me the earth is only 6,000 years old. We've got ice over 100,000 years. The reason he said that is because in Greenland, we have the deepest ice in the world. They have taken core samples 10,000 feet deep. Well, to date the ice, they count how many layers there are. They counted 135,000 layers. So they say that ice age must have happened about 135,000 years ago. The problem is, when they melted the hole down to get to these airplanes that were only 48 years old in 263 feet of ice, they could see the layers. You can see the picture of them here. If there's 48 years, how many layers should I have? 48. Help you with the tough ones. Yeah, 48 layers. There were several hundred layers of ice. Not 48. You know what that tells me? That tells me the way they date ice, it's wrong. It doesn't work. But we've seen what we see in observable science, though, was 10,000 feet. But what we see in observable science, though, is five and a half feet of ice accumulated every year. That means you take that five and a half feet of annual growth, apply it into the 10,000 feet of ice that we have in the world, allow for compression rates, it puts the ice age at about 4,400 years ago. That is almost exactly when Noah's flood is getting over. Supporting as well that Noah's flood is what caused the ice age because of the gases being put into that atmosphere. You know, ignorance can be fixed, but stupid... That one's forever. Guys, you know, people always come up to me and say, don't you think those evolutionists are stupid? And I say, well, actually, not at all. I think they're actually quite intelligent. Many of them could run circles around my pea brain. Guys, these people aren't dumb. They're ignorant of God's word. They're spiritually blind. If there was a blind man that came in here and started tripping over things and knocking over my computer and all these things, who of you would say, hey, watch where you're going, you dumb blind man? No. That would be wrong and rude, wouldn't it? Likewise, I believe it is just as wrong and rude for us as believers to call these evolutionist names. Because they're blind. My Bible says the spiritual things cannot be understood by natural man. No, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. These people can't see. Unless they repent, they won't see. The best thing that you can do if you have a a teacher or a professor that's out there teaching evolution, don't call them names and say, he's so stupid he believes in evolution. Pray for them. 
Because, guys, this is not a scientific battle. This is a spiritual battle. Science supports the Bible, as you're about to see. Science isn't the problem. It's the spiritual foundation that's the problem. What would our world be like if we had more oxygen and air pressure like I proposed we did? We have here what are called hyperbaric chambers. My correspondent for this was Dr. William Fife at Texas A&M. They have done more research on this than anywhere else in the world. On average, he said, you will heal in one of these things in half the time. But he said, you don't just turn on the air and the oxygen. You have to regulate this. And the best setting is to have 25 to 28% oxygen and twice the atmospheric pressure. Now, sometimes you can go to hospitals. They'll put 100% in here. But it seems like all the medical books are saying it's unnecessary. The best average setting is twice the atmospheric pressure, 25 to 28% oxygen sometimes it's a room or a a tube that you go into here there are mild chambers like this one here where you can go into and it only gets about 1.3 pressures but amazing things go on in these even in mild chambers there was this one man who had a stroke and he lost the use of his right arm leg and speech after 14 treatments in one of these things he made a full recovery another 74 year old man had a stroke needed to use a walker two years later he tried hbo hyperbaric oxygen and he regained the use of his legs with just a small limp and his disposition improved greatly as well in england over six thousand multiple sclerosis patients france arthritis treatments are being done you know a lot of different things more and more are, are being discovered all the time One woman was bit by a tick when she was six years old, developed what they thought was Lyme's disease. At the age of 16, she was confined to a wheelchair. Her head hung down. She could hardly lift it up on her own. She was so weak. But after two and a half months of treatment with Dr. Fife, she was able to get up out of her wheelchair, walk short distances, even rode a horse. Another man, legally dead due to carbon monoxide poisoning. Legally dead. But he was an organ donor, and so they wanted to give his organs to somebody else. So they wheeled him and his life support system into the chamber, hoping to clean up the organs. Three days later, they had the organs cleaned up because he walks out of the hospital completely recovered with complete memory. And this is the kind of world we may have lived in, in the pre-flood atmosphere. Almost every professional sports team now has these because you heal in half the time. Almost every one. Terrell Owens, a few years back, broke his ankles five weeks before the Super Bowl. They had did surgery, put pins in his ankle, and then he's playing in the Super Bowl five weeks later. And they say, he shouldn't be playing. And then he gets the MVP, and they say, he's been spending time in a hyperbaric chamber. Now, I don't want to give you the idea that this is a miracle cure for everything. It isn't. But we do see amazing things going on, simply by reproducing what we believe the pre-flood world was like. In Japan, they're showing some promising work in deafness and blindness. Sweden, gangrene and Berger's disease. We got in Belgium for re-implanting extremities, your arm cut off, things like that, for healing because you just heal faster in there. India, they're working on it with leprosy. We know it's helping cerebral palsy patients. It cuts infections in half. It's, It's helping children in a lot of different diseases that they have. Maybe this could be what our pre-flood world was like. I know I got stung by a bee once, and I swelled up like 
Popeye. The problem is only one arm looked like Popeye. Well, I uh, had access to one of these, and I went into a chamber. A 45-minute dive Sunday afternoon, because Sunday I went to church, I could hardly lift my arm up to shake people's hands. Got stung Saturday afternoon. So Sunday afternoon, I was able to go in. I took a 45-minute dive, and by that evening, I had full range of motion. It was just a tiny bit stiff. Normally, if I get stung by a bee, I swell up. I stay that way for five days. Then I go through this itchy stage. None of that. Amazing things happen. Well, what would our world be like then for plants in this kind of environment? A guy named Kimori at Keio University in Tokyo, Japan, did an interesting study with cherry tomato plants. He wanted to maximize the potential of a cherry tomato plant. So he stuck it into a chamber where he doubled the air pressure and got rid of the harmful effects of the sun through fiber optics. Inadvertently recreating what we believe the pre-flood world was like. Two years later, he has a cherry tomato plant that's still alive. That's amazing in itself. And it was 14 feet tall. Had 903 tomatoes on it. Baseball to grapefruit size. Yeah, here's Key Mori. He passed away in 1993, but the plant lives on today. It is over 40 feet tall, almost 50 years old. Has over 15,000 tomatoes on it. And yet, do you know this is exactly what we see in the fossil record? Plants that today are only 18 inches tall are over 120 feet tall in the fossil record. This is why when you go to the museums, you are going to see that at the time of the dinosaurs, they have different vegetation because the fossil record reveals that. It's that simple. Guys, I don't know if you've ever seen a calf puller before, but I think it's a great illustration of... What's going on with this creation-evolution debate? If a cow is having a baby and it can't get the baby out, they take this thing here that's on the side of the fence. That goes against the rear end of the mother. There's a cable that goes down, and it ties to the feet of the calf that's sticking out of the mother. And then that jack is where they just... As fast as they can, they pop this thing out of the mother. Well, one day, there was a farmer pulling a calf with one of these things. A city guy was driving along... And he thought, what is that guy doing to that cow? So he pulls over to the side of the road to watch. The farmer sees this and invites him over. As he's watching this whole thing, the farmer says, you've never seen this before, huh? And the city guy says, never in my life. He said, well, do you have any questions? He said, yeah. How fast do you figure that calf had to have been going when it ran into the back of that thing? (laughs) Same evidence. But two very different interpretations of what's going on here, huh? It's not a calf that was not watching where it was going and ran into the back of a cow. It's a cow having a baby. I live on the same earth that the evolutionists do. I have the exact same scientific data that they do. The data is not the problem. What's the problem? The interpretation. I have yet to find any evidence anywhere in any field of science that contradicts what the Bible says in a young earth. Not one. It all fits. You just have to have the right interpretation, the right glasses, the world view to look at the evidence through. In October of 2011, an international team announced 80 baleen whales had been found buried in the desert of Chile. 
Why? Whales aren't in deserts, guys. Even in Nebraska, we find millions of shark's teeth. What are sharks doing in Nebraska? I can tell you one thing. They're not vacationing here. Well, an evolutionist looks at that evidence and they have to interpret it. So what do they do? They say, well, the oceans have been moving around. I used to have oceanfront property. No, guys, it was called Noah's Flood. Same evidence, different interpretation. Coal. Do you know that we find coal 200 feet thick throughout the Midwest? They tell you that it takes millions of years for coal to form. Do you know that we can make it in a laboratory in just 20 minutes? So why are they telling you it takes so long if we can do it in just 20 minutes? Well, they say, do you know how much vegetation it would take to get 200 feet of coal? You would have to have millions of years of plants growing and dying, growing and dying, growing and dying, growing and dying, growing and dying to get that much vegetation in one place that could be compressed into that much coal. Well, I've got another interpretation. You see, if Noah's flood were true, I don't know if you've ever been in a local flood before, but it carries the vegetation to general places and leaves it there. Likewise, Noah's flood would take that huge vegetation we see in the fossil record, take it to general locations, and leave it there. A continent come over top or just get buried in flood sediments and you would have coal forming in a very short period of time. Here we have a bell with a pagan god on it found with coal. Guys, if coal took millions of years to form, that shouldn't happen. Not at all. Here's a felt hat, now a hard hat in less than 50 years. See, things fossilize quickly as well. You don't need millions of years to fossilize, as many textbooks tell us. It happens quickly. Here we see a teddy bear fossilized in two weeks, a rose in five days. All you need is mineral-rich water, and that's exactly what Noah's flood would provide. Here's a cowboy leg fossilized in the cowboy boot. The boot manufacturers say that the boot was made in about 1930. So we know that fossils can form in less than that amount of time. Yeah. And as Hoven used to say, you know, we have to rewrite that song now. It's a limestone cowboy. Yeah. Sorry about that. But bottom line is, guys, things fossilize quickly. Here's a fish giving birth in the fossil record. That's how fast you have to get buried to turn into a fossil. So fast you don't even have time to swallow. A little one getting eaten by a big one. Couldn't even swallow. Or the little one could be a dentist. It just depends on your interpretation, I guess, right? No, the evidence fits the Bible, clearly. You need a lot of water and a lot of mud to turn into a fossil. You don't just die. But that's what they tell you is all these things, well, they just died in the ocean. Do you know what happens in the ocean today when things die? They get eaten up. They don't fossilize. You have to get buried, removed from the oxygen in the air in about 30 seconds time or else you just don't fossilize. A lot of water and a lot of mud. Hmm, I wonder what would give us that. Do you suppose Noah's flood would do something like that? You bet. Which is why we see the leaves that are fossilized all around the world. Their cells are plump with water. Speaking of rapid burial, normally they would wither and crack, but that's not how they're found. Here's a a tree with a petrified dog in it. That gives new meaning to the word tree bark, doesn't it? (laughs) No, this stuff had to happen quickly. Or flower sacks that have been buried here and fossilized. 
This is from a flood in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. In some cases, the whales are up on their tails. You mean they just died that way? Uh Uh-uh, that speaks of rapid burial and large amounts of water. If Noah's flood were true, what I would expect to see is I would expect that many animals that didn't live together would be brought together. The waters are going to swirl them around, so they're all going to get messed up, and they're going to start losing pieces. And you know what? That's exactly what we see in the fossil record. Animals that don't live together are brought together, all messed up, missing pieces in the fossil record. Now, there is some truth that we normally see the reptiles on the bottom and then mammals and then birds. Normally, that is true in the fossil record. However, there's explanations why we see that. There's habitat. Things living in different areas. And by the way, we never find this nice little neat geological column anywhere in the world. It doesn't exist. It's not even in the Grand Canyon. So we never see all these things together in one spot. It's, it's based highly upon evolutionary assumptions. But in general, we do see birds up on top. But sometimes we find birds underneath. And if you see a bird that's down below, what do they say? Well, maybe it's an evolution thing, a dinosaur with you know feathers, right? No. Sometimes you see the reptiles up top. Thousands of times this happens, guys. This isn't an isolated case. Another reason is intelligence. If you have a 600-foot tidal wave and it's coming at a clam, an alligator, a saber-toothed tiger, and a human being, which one do you think is going to get buried first? Well, naturally, because of mobility, the clam is going to get buried first. Then probably the alligator. And then maybe the saber-toothed tiger. And then man, who has the intelligence to know what's coming, as well as the ability to tread water and all that, they'll probably be last. There's also the aspect of just density of bones. Dr. Leonard Brand, he buried a bird, a mammal, a reptile, and amphibian in muddy water. Because of liquefaction, they, they sort into the order that we find them in the fossil record with the bird on top, then the mammal, then the reptile, then the amphibian. Very simple. Because of just putting them in mud and having that mud be turned around and, and, and just do what would happen in nature. You know, Ken Ham used to always say, we find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. That's what Noah's flood and the prediction of the Bible would give us. Not evolution, though. What the Bible predicts is what we see. Evolution, we ought to find all kinds of missing links, trans, you know, uh, transitional forms, but we don't. The species are an accurate representation of what we see today. Well, how about the dinosaurs? What happened to all the dinosaurs? Do you know I took a graduate course, paid good money to learn what I'm about to give you for free? Because that's all it was worth. I was told a new plant began to evolve. The dinosaurs started eating this plant, didn't realize that it would cause them to become constipated. Yeah, it's called the constipation theory. They couldn't go to the bathroom and died. Not the best way to go. Or not go. Well, anyway. (laughs) There's the tight short theory, they called it, where the climate became too warm and the males became sterile. Or you probably heard this one where the meteorite came crashing into the earth causing a big dust storm and blocked out the sun. Well, they don't believe that anymore. Now they say the meteorite hit the oceans, caused a big tidal wave to come in on land and bury them in water and mud. Oh, isn't that convenient? 
Yeah, they got their water in mud now, didn't they? That's why in my book, Doubts About Creation, not after this, I have many quotes of evolutionists saying, local floods buried these dinosaurs. They won't admit Noah's flood. Well, because that would mean God's word is true, right? And we can't have them believing that. Guys, I think Satan knows that he can't have you believe in Noah's flood. Because Noah's flood is not only evidence of the Bible, it's evidence of judgment upon sin. And if you believe in Noah's flood, then you're believing in judgment upon sin. And Satan doesn't want you believing that God could come back again and judge the world because of sin. He wants you to think you're just fine doing what you're doing. There are spiritual reasons that this is one of the things that is attacked so highly, not to mention the dating methods as well. Do you know that the dating methods don't work if Noah's flood is true? There are many problems with the dating methods, but one of them is this. If I get a rock to get dated, I have to take painstaking care to make sure the rock that I pick up has never been near water, a river, a lake, a stream, because water will leach in and leach out elements that are needed in that rock. I think potassium has a half-life of like 1.3 billion years. That means half of it will disappear in 1.3 billion years. Do you know that we can get 80% of it to disappear in four and a half hours by putting it in water? 80%. But the whole dating methods are dependent upon these half-lifes being consistent. So that's why you can't take a rock out of water to date it. Now, There are other problems with these dating methods. Many of them, that geological column that I mentioned is another problem. As a matter of fact, if if I have a rock that I want dated, I may send it into the lab. They'll call me up and say, Mr. Young, where'd you get this rock? And I say, I don't remember where that one came from. Well, I'm sorry, we can't date your rock. Why? Because I have to tell them how old my rock is before they can tell me how old my rock is. Same scenario. Mr. Young, where'd you get this rock? Oh, I found it south of town in a limestone layer. I just told them how old it was. You see, they have the geological column predated by evolution already. So I told them where it was found. They know how old the rock should be. They'll date that. Any date that does not fit how old it's supposed to be according to the theory of evolution is cast out and called contaminated. Is that good science? Not at all. That's terrible science. That, that's basically selecting the dates that you want out. And again, there are many more problems. If you want more on that, you can get my DVD on the dating methods or or other things that are on our uh, website there. Just know you don't need to be afraid of those dating methods. And by the way, they are finding the same 52 species of animals above the meteorite hit that they find underneath the meteorite hit, showing the meteorite could not have killed those dinosaurs. Some think that I was taught here in graduate course, by the way, that the dinosaurs just starved because they didn't have enough food to eat. Others say they had too much food to eat. Still others say the wrong kind of food to eat gave them bad gas, and that took care of the problem. Now, we can chuckle at this, guys, but I'm serious. This is what I learned at graduate school. It shouldn't surprise us, though. I remember when I was in high school, and even in college, one of the problems with this hole in the ozone was because of burping and farting cows. Yeah, burping and farting cows? Yeah, farmers, you just had to get, you know, those ranchers had to get the... uh, Cows some gas sex. Save the planet. I'd love to see Michelle Obama getting on Disney Channel talking about that, you know. Please, ranchers, get your cows some gas sex. Save the planet. Go green. This is ridiculous. But these are the kind of things that we have to stoop to to deny the Bible and Noah's flood. 
Henry Morris of the Institute for Creation Research used to say this, if you take a frog and you turn it into a prince in five minutes, you've got a wonderful fairy tale to read to your kids at night. But if you take a frog and you turn it into a prince in a matter of a million years or so, now you've got science and evolution. Science today has become who can come up with the greatest fairy tale and get the most people to buy into it. So what fairy tale has won out? Dinosaurs didn't go extinct. They turned into birds. Never mind the fact that we have no evidence of this at all. Not one. They say, oh, yes, we do. We've got Archaeopteryx. No, it's a bird. Well, it had teeth in its beak. Yes, we have plenty of birds in the fossil record with teeth in their beaks. Well, underneath Archaeopteryx, so you can't have Archaeopteryx, you know, turning into a bird if you've already got birds. But they said, but this had a type of claw on the end of its wing. Uh, yes, you mean like an ostrich does today, or an eagle, or a hawatson? Even a chicken has a type of uh, claw on the end of its wing, a bony little claw-like thing. Because this is a bird, and many evolutionists even admit it. It says in GeoTimes, but there are plenty of other reasons to refute the dinosaur-bird connection, says Alan Fiducia here. He's an evolutionist. He says, biophysically, it's impossible. You've got three and four chambered hearts to deal with, hollow bones. Now, I know evolutionists think we have found hollow bones in dinosaurs. No, they have found things that haven't fossilized well. They, there's no evidence that these were hollow-boned creatures. It's an interpretation and a poor one at that. He goes on uh, that there are no fossil evidences of this reptile-to-bird change. None outside of things like Archaeopteryx, which many evolutionists say is nothing but a perching bird. They had Archaeoraptor. Well, it was, covered on, it was on the cover of Newsweek magazine, National Geographic. And they said dinosaurs turning into birds, evolving into birds. Turns out it was a fake fossil. A guy in China took a bird fossil and a reptile fossil, cut the two in half, put the two together, and it fooled all of our scientists. Even the ones that wear those white lab coats fooled. This is not science, guys. This is interpretation. This is sad. Yet, you can go to Jack Horner's museum. This is the guy the movie Jurassic Park was modeled after. In Bozeman, Montana, the Museum of the Rockies, we see this, this feathered dinosaur on top of this other one. There isn't a fossil in the entire world showing us this. Nowhere. Yet, this is what they're trying to get you to believe. This is not science. They've even set up a system that has made it so that dinosaurs have to be related to birds. If you want to extract dinosaur DNA, you've got this many-step process. Step number eight says, is the sequence similar to birds? If it's not, you start over. They're creating a system that has to show dinosaurs related to birds. Do you know a recent survey in PLOS 1 showed this? It's a secular peer-reviewed journal. One out of seven scientists admitted to fake data in their research. Three out of four said they committed questionable research practices. One out of three admit to failing to present data that contradicts their previous research. They're lying to us. They admit they're lying to us. And yet, we believe them? I would much rather believe in the Word of God that does not change, who does not lie. As far as dinosaurs turning into birds, too, guys, think about this for a moment. Here is a picture of a reptile scale under a microscope. We have no evidence that scales could turn into feathers. 
Matter of fact, they even say we lack completely fossils of all intermediate stages between reptile scales and the most primitive feather. We, we don't have any evidence. The origin of feathers in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology, they said at the morphological level, feathers are traditionally considered homologous with reptile scales. However, in development, gene structure, protein shape, all these different things, he says they are very different. Clearly, feathers provide a unique and outstanding example of an evolutionary novelty. In other words, we really don't have evidence. It's a novelty. We believe evolution produced it. But guys, the anatomy of a feather is not a frayed scale. It may have similar like keratin and whatnot, but that doesn't mean anything. That's just common design. Here's a feather. They've got all these ratches, veins, barbs, barbules, hooklets. Under a microscope, you can see how they hook together. It's kind of like Velcro. That's what a bird does when it's preening itself, getting those hooks back together so air doesn't go through the feather. And and let alone the feathers to form, even if it did, you've got the evolution of flight that has to form. We've got, you know, this first one, can you imagine, going up, trying to jump off of a hill, and ah, boom, evolution starts all over. Discovery Channel had a program called Dinosaurs Return to Life. And the newest thing, this is what you're going to hear next. Because you see, they can't clone a dinosaur. They realize that now. Can't clone it. So the newest thing is, well, let's just genetically engineer it backwards. If a dinosaur turned into a chicken, let's take a chicken and turn it back into a dinosaur. The Archaeopteryx here that I just showed you has about 14, 15 vertebrae in its tail. A chicken has three or four, and ancestors of the T-Rex had like 34. So what we're going to do is we're going to see if we can just take the chicken and add another 10 vertebrae onto it, then you're going to get to Archaeopteryx, (laughs) add another 20, 30 on, and you're going to get T-Rex. Guys, no, you get a chicken with a long tail. (laughs) What they do is in the embryonic stages, they take the protein where the vertebrae are, are growing and they stimulate that. And in the embryonic stages, they've gotten an extra couple of vertebrae in there. No big deal. You know, a chicken doesn't hatch, by the way. Then, you know, the scales that these chickens have on their feet. What if you could turn off the gene that causes the feathers to grow and stimulate the scales to cover the entire body? You'd be halfway there. No, it's a cold chicken. That's all it is. But this is the kind of fairy tale garbage that they're trying to put off as science. I could take you and I could cover your entire body. It doesn't make you a monkey, does it? It makes you a hairy boy. That's all. We'll change your name. Harry, but that's it. It's not going to make you a monkey. Outward appearance is, is a lot different as well than just what goes on on the inside. How are you going to get you know, the four-chambered heart and all of these other things to be taken care of? Hollow bones. They, they're looking at just shoddy evidence to get that kind of stuff let alone the evolution of the human being, do you know that scientists say that there's about 10 to the 80th power of atoms in the universe? Not solar system, universe. That gives you an idea how big the number 10 to the 80th power is. 10 to the 120th power of electrons. Do you know just to get a human cell to evolve, you're looking at 10 to the 240th power? So no way, even if that could happen, 10 to the 240th power happens, some guy evolves over in Africa somewhere. Now what? Now you've got to get a woman to evolve at the same place 
within about a 50-year period while she's still fertile. Okay, so the same place, the same time, in a lot of different ways so that the reproductive organs are working and everything. And to really make the odds go up, she's going to have to be interested. It isn't happening. No way the odds of this stuff could happen, let alone just the, the, the genetic aspect that it couldn't happen. Uh, speaking of humans evolving, look at this. This is Nebraska man, the first cornhusker right here. They found one tooth, and from one tooth, this is what they put in our museums. Isn't science amazing? Well, I don't know, because later they found the rest of the bones that belonged to the tooth. Turned out to be a pig. Yeah, were they close? Not even. But notice the whites in the eyes and the human-looking feet. You'd think we'd learn our lesson, but we haven't. Today in the museums, we still have here Lucy. They only found 40% of her skeleton. 40%. Notice they did not find the hand or feet bones. But on Lucy here in St. Louis, look, they have human hands and feet on her. Whites in the eyes again. Apparently they even found a fossilized thought, giving her reasoning capabilities. As David Menton said, I I think I know what she's thinking here. I, I have nothing to wear. This is silly. This is not science. This is art. Donald Johansson found Lucy in 1974. He was a nobody. He did not let anybody look at those bones for 10 years, which, by the way, is pretty typical. That's the way it works. In the meantime, he published all kinds of papers, and a nobody became a somebody. At the end of those 10 years, he comes and he lets other people look at him. The Leakeys, the most famous evolutionary anthropologists, look at it, and they say in 10 minutes, it's a chimpanzee. Most evolutionists would say this is a chimpanzee, but you'd never know that from PBS. Now, the knee joint that made her walk upright was found a mile and a half away, 200 feet deeper than the rest of the bones. You call that science? Can you imagine finding something a mile and a half away from the rest of the bones of something you find in your yard, thinking it belongs to, it, to, to one another? No. So it was called the Hadar knee. So because of that, it was brought into question. They needed something else to get this thing to walk upright. So what do they do? Well, enter the hip joint. I'm going to show you a clip here off of David Menton's DVD called Lucy, She's No Lady. Just watch and be amazed, because I don't think you'd believe me if I told you. They're supposed to be human-like hips, so you can walk the way the Latoli footprints showed she walked. But they don't look like human hips. They look like ape hips. What to do about this? Watch it. You'll get a big kick out of this. The ape that stood up It was a revolutionary idea. We needed Owen Lovejoy's expertise again, because the evidence wasn't quite adding up. The knee looked human, but the shape of her hip didn't. Superficially, her hip resembled a chimpanzee's, which meant that Lucy couldn't possibly have walked like a modern human. But Lovejoy noticed something odd about the way the bones had been fossilized. When I put the two parts of the pelvis together that we had, this part of the pelvis has pressed so hard and so completely into this one that it caused it to be broken into a series of individual pieces which were then fused together in later fossils. So you see they were uh, broken and they don't fit together properly. They did speculate in the program as to exactly who was responsible for breaking the hip, 
and uh, current scientific evidence suggests perhaps a deer stepped on it. Here you can see a deer foot stepping uh, on the bone. Isn't that a bummer? Uh, let's uh, see where it goes from here. Um, this has caused the two bones, in fact, to fit together so well so that well. they're in an anatomically impossible position. <laughs> the perfect fit was an illusion that made Lucy's hip bone seem to flare out like a chimp's. But all was not lost. <laughs> this is a power saw, friends. <laughs> you may want to put your goggles on. Lovejoy decided he could restore the pelvis to its natural shape. He didn't want to tamper with the original, so he made a copy in plaster. Notice he's removing whole parts, not just cutting. He cut the damaged pieces out and put them back together the way they were before Lucy died. It was a tricky job, but after taking the kink out of the pelvis, it all fit together perfectly, like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. Look how perfect. You can read a newspaper through the hole. As a result, the angle of the hip looks nothing like a chimp's, but a lot like ours. <laughs> yeah, now, this is what we call science. Isn't that something? That's not science at all, is it? No. This is silly. And yet our kids go to these museums, and this is what we see, and they believe it. I mean, look at this. Whites in the eyes, monkeys and apes, as I said, don't have that. I've owned monkeys. They don't have it. We would take them to our, our science camps that we have and our creation camps and, and let the kids play with these monkeys and see all the differences and, and, and show them that we're not related to a monkey in any way, shape, or form. But yet even in our children's books, sometimes they will put whites in the eyes to lessen the difference between a monkey and a man. Even our children's books are doing that. The feet of a chimp and a human are completely different. Look at Lucy's foot compared to a modern human. They have that posable digit on the side. Now, how do I say this is what Lucy's foot was when they didn't find the hand and the feet? Well, later we found another one of these. We found the hand and the feet joints, the bones. And it was chimpanzee feet. We went and asked them, why do you have human feet and human hands on Lucy when it was proven that they were chimpanzee? Here's their answer. We can't change these exhibits every time new information comes about. And besides, we believe it portrays the information we're trying to get across. <laughs> and what might that be? The lie of evolution. This is silly. They clearly were chimpanzee feet. They have that opposable digit. Humans don't. The jaw bones. A human being has more of a parabola. Monkeys and apes, they have more straight in the backs like that. We didn't find enough bones to really see what was going on in Lucy, but those are important bones to find. It'd be nice to have those. Even the skull, on the bottom of it, we see where the spinal cord goes in. If you walk on all fours, it is more towards the back because your head has to hang down like this. But if it is a human or something that walks upright, it's more towards the middle since we are upright walkers. Well, here is Lucy's skull compared to a chimp and a human being. Lucy's there, the darker one. Now, look at that. It certainly looks more like a chimp, doesn't it? But that's not Lucy's skull even. This is Lucy's skull. Only the dark bones were found. That gives you a lot of freedom to make this thing look like whatever you want it to look like. Put the jaw however, the spinal cord however. 
And I think we ought to make these guys, you know, head of the CSI teams. Just think of how many crimes they could solve. If we really believe they can do the stuff that they're doing in anthropology, we ought to put them as head of our CSIs. But this is what you need to be aware of when you're going to these museums. You're seeing a lot of just pieces of evidence and most of its interpretation. This is why it's so easy to make a hoax. Piltdown man, Peking man was was man's lunch. Uh, turned out to be a monkey skull, all kinds of things. Nothing has proven. They're either completely human or completely monkey, or in some cases I think they've got a mixture of both put together. The hip joint is completely different. And you saw what they did to get the hip joint to look like a human there on that video. We don't see animals turning into people today, do we? No, we don't. Now, I'm not trying to slam President Clinton here. What I'm saying is that we are very different than an animal. And evolutionists wants to make this just kind of a matter of genetic differences, that these genetic changes over time will turn into a human being. You know, lose the hair, start walking upright, you got a human being. No, there's much more. That animal is two-dimensional. President Clinton was an intelligent three-dimensional being. Like I said, I'm not trying to slam him. I believe he was intelligent. I'm using this to show you that's impossible. You see, two-dimensional creatures have a body and a soul. A three-dimensional creature, like a human being, has a body, a soul, and a spirit. An animal doesn't have a spirit. And I can prove this in the book of Genesis. You read just the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word create is to make out of absolutely nothing. God made everything out of nothing. You can't create anything. You can only make things out of what God has created. It's kind of like that old joke where the guy and uh, scientists are going up to God saying, you know, we can do all this stuff with genetics now. We can create life. Let's have a competition who can make life better. And so they both go off and, and, uh, to this lab. And uh, they, scientists, they pick up this handful of dirt. And God says, ah, uh-uh, time out. No, get your own dirt. See, it's no competition, guys. God created everything, and then he made things out of that creation. He creates right there in the beginning in verse 1. Do you know that word create is not used again until the fifth day of creation? He only makes the sun, moon, and stars. He makes things out of what he created right there in the beginning. But day five, he has to create again. Why? Because something that wasn't in existence had to be brought into existence. What's new on day five that wasn't there on the first four days? Life, living things. The fifth day, he creates again because he has to make Life. He makes those animals, he creates those animals by adding life to them. You know that word life is nephesh. It's the same word for soul. Check it out in your Bible. Just you, know, you have some computer programs on internet. You can go find this out. Therefore, when it says the life of a creature is in its blood, it says the soul of a creature is in its blood. If you've got blood, you've got a soul. What is a soul? Well, I think it's where your emotions are at. A dog, does it have emotions? Yeah, you can say, hey, and it pees right there on the carpet, right? You come home, it's all excited to see you. They've got emotions, but they don't have a spirit. That spirit heightens those emotions. So yes, we can see aspects, but we are a trinity. Now, I don't think that you can cleanly divide body, soul, and spirit. It's like that trinity. We, we can't 
fully understand it. But nonetheless, on day six, when it comes around, God makes man and creates man. He already had the dirt. He already had the life to make us. Why does he have to create, bring something into existence that wasn't there before? Because he puts the spiritual nature in man. He breathes it personally into us. And that heightens our emotions and it allows us to worship God in a unique way. That's why the Bible says that we worship God in spirit and truth. We have a spirit. We are three-dimensional. So when you hear evolution being talked about, and it's just a matter of genetics, I want you to understand it's far more than that. There's a spiritual difference between a man and an animal. And, you know, we don't see animals having a conscience either. Why? Because that's a spiritual nature. The spiritual nature that's in a man, not a monkey. Getting back to the dinosaurs, though. You know, here's Gary Larson's idea as far as what happened to the dinosaurs. He thought they were smoking. Now, we can chuckle at this, but there could be some truth to this. You know, some of these larger dinosaurs, like Seismosaurus, T-Rex, and others, they have very large bodies but small rib cages. If you have a small rib cage, you have a small heart and a small lung. Now, if you have that small lung and a nostril that is small, the size of a horse, they say, new theory, lack of oxygen, not an asteroid killed the dinosaurs couldn't get enough oxygen in the deep inner cells of their body with that small lung and small nostril. But if we had more oxygen and more air pressure in a more recent past than what they're willing to admit, they wouldn't have to be sucking on oxygen tanks. Problem solved. Or how about this? How could these pterodactyls and pteranodons fly? They had a wingspan of an F-4 phantom jet. The legs suggest they barely could walk, let alone run the great speeds they'd have to to get into the air. But twice the atmospheric pressure, more recent past, would allow them to fly in a slight breeze. Problem solved. How about this guy? How could he get blood to pump to the top of its head with such a small heart? No way that could happen, they'd say. They've come up with all kinds of different theories, from multivalved hearts to, to many hearts, so you know, wouldn't have to pump blood uphill with one little heart. What they've done to get around this is now... This is what they look like in the museums. They've changed the look of them. The head now goes out rather than up. They just change the the look of them. Don't you wish you could do that every time you had a problem? Just change the look? But it still leaves a problem with brachiosaur. Its body structure does not allow its head to go out because there's not enough weight in the hind end. He needs a bigger rear end or he'd tip over. So what do they do in the museums? Most of the time you see this guy, he will be in a swamp up over his rib cage to increase the pressure on the rib cage. Yeah, but we already had the problem solved. Our dinosaur could get out of the water, this land creature. You might say, how does a giraffe do it? Well, a giraffe has a big rib cage for the size of its body. Do you know a bull giraffe can have a heart two and a half feet long? There's a lot of loving in one of them babies. Well, I want to show you a miracle here today. Okay, this is a miracle. You're not impressed? You should be. Think about it. You've got a two and a half foot heart going pop, boom, pop, boom, pop, boom to pump blood uphill. Now he gets thirsty. He bends over and gravity kicks in, already pulling the blood to its head. And that heart goes pop, boom. He ought to go pop, ah, and blow its brains right out of its head. By all scientific reason, the giraffe should blow its brains out every time it gets a drink of water. 
But it doesn't. Why? Because God made it the way it was supposed to be made, fully functioning, fully formed, right away on the sixth day of creation. You see, it has valves in the neck, and those valves close when he bends over to get a drink. The heart it doesn't pump blood to its head anymore. There's even a wonder net, it's called, a sponge-like thing at the base of the brain that already has blood in it. I mean, how could that evolve, guys, slowly over millions of years? If the wonder net wasn't there, the valves hadn't formed, and the poor guy got thirsty? You know, oh, guys, oh, don't drink the water. I hope it rains. Oh, no. That's design. Here's the old Lamarckian idea of how the giraffe evolved, you know, stretching its neck out to try and get leaves. And generations after generations of passing this down, you get a long neck. Well, even evolutionists don't say that this is how it happens anymore. But the reason I show it to you is because I think that Gary Larson had it closer. I think they started up top and worked their way down. As long as we're talking about fairy tales, right? Yeah, you know, the babies got tired of falling 15 feet. And they're saying, I'm not going to do that to my children. No. You know, let me ask you this. So when did God make T-Rex? You know, most people in the church can't even answer that question, which is sad. But it's not a hard question. Let me see if I can help you out here. Is T-Rex an animal that lived on land, a land animal? You bet. Well, the Bible says that all land animals were made on the sixth day of creation, about 6,000 years ago. So when did God make T-Rex? Well, on the sixth day of creation, about 6,000 years ago, didn't he? Not a problem. By the way, what else did God make on the sixth day? Man, so did people live with dinosaurs? Well, at least what the Bible seems to indicate, yes. And we'll continue to pile up the evidence. But let me ask you this. Are dinosaurs in the Bible? Well, if you said yes, you're right. If you said no, you're right too. You see, the word dinosaur is not in the Bible. For a very good reason. The same reason the word email is not there. That word was not around when the Bible was translated into English in the year 1600 in the King James Version. We didn't even find dinosaur bones till 1830. Didn't even know what to call them till 1841 when the word dinosaur was invented. No wonder we don't see the word dinosaur in the Bible. But you do find them under their real names, I believe. In Job 40, starting at verse 15, going to the end of the chapter, you've got this amazing creature called Behemoth. It says, look at Behemoth, which I made along with you. He feeds on grass like an ox. Now, by the way, with you means day six of creation, not millions of years before you. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar tree. His bones are like tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron, and it goes on. What could this thing be? Well, I'm thankful for those footnotes we have at the bottom of the Bible because it tells us what it is. It says it's possibly an elephant or a hippopotamus. Now, I want you to understand something. Footnotes are not inspired. God inspired the Bible, but not the footnotes. Those are man-made. You know, I would love to meet the man that wrote that footnote because I have one question for him. Have you ever seen the tail of an elephant? It's not a cedar tree. It's more like a toothpick, isn't it? Yeah, that could not be. And the hippopotamus? Yeah, that sure took care of the problem, didn't it? 
You should have seen them at the zoo when I was taking that picture. They're all grabbing their kids. Get away from that man. No, guys, they don't have a tail like a cedar tree. No. You know, with this kind of reasoning, Behemoth had a big belly, right? Maybe this is Behemoth, huh? No. You know, but I'm surprised it hasn't shown up in the footnotes yet with that kind of reasoning. Some say, okay, you're right, it's got to be an alligator. Well, guess what? Alligators don't eat grass like an ox. The only animal that fits, and it doesn't just kind of fit, it fits in every detail, and that's the dinosaur. Every detail. Go back and read it. Job 40. Job 41 is the next one. The entire chapter of Job 41 talks about a creature called Leviathan. Now, some people think this is just a mythological thing, a symbolic Guys, let me ask you this. Why would Job, who is talking to God here, and God is trying to show Job how amazing he is, why would God say, hey, Job, imagine if this creature existed. That's how big I am. No. Yes, indeed, Leviathan is used symbolically to represent Satan in other verses and other chapters and other books. But it is a real animal that is being symbolically used. Here we see Leviathan described. It says that he has the doors of his mouth ringed about with fearsome teeth. His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the necks that not even air can pass between them. Fire streams from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire. It says that his chest is as hard as a rock so that the sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw, bronze like rotten wood. And he goes in the water and on land. But when he goes in the water, it says that he leaves this huge wake behind him that you would think the deep had white hair. I mean, guys, look at me for a moment. Do you really think that there was an animal out there that if he was threatened by something could go and blow fire like that? Excuse me, I probably shouldn't have had that spicy food today. Really? Blowing fire? Well, do you know that today, still in Africa, we've got this creature here called the bombardier beetle. And the bombardier beetle can shoot out its back end a noxious gas at over 212 degrees Fahrenheit, never misses its target. I know some of you can do it too, but it's a different process. This thing has chemicals and enzymes that are stored in separate storage chambers. It mixes them together in a combustion tube. When it meets the oxygen in the air, poof, it goes off. How in the world could something like this evolve? What if those chemicals weren't mixed right? What if the combustion tubes hadn't formed and that poor guy goes, Huh, I wonder what happens when I do this. I can tell you what will happen. Evolution starts all over. This is design. It goes off 500 pulses in a second, bracing itself between each burst. Can you imagine? How did that come about by chance? If it didn't do that and it just let it all out at one time, it would shoot across the room like a rocket. That might be cool for a while until you hit the tree, but it's not going to work for evolution. Here's a frog going after one of these things. He gets sprayed. Then he runs away with his tongue hanging from his mouth, no longer likes that hot African food anymore. That's fantastic design. But it fits with dinosaurs because we have in the fossil record many of these bonehead dinosaurs. They've got these bony structures on the back of their heads. And they're hollow in many cases. Could they, in these storage chambers that are even there, possibly store chemicals 
similar to that of the bombardier beetle today. They could mix them together in this combustion tube, which then goes up to the top, does a U-turn, and then goes right out its nostril. Poof, you could have fire. Now, I'm not saying this is Leviathan. I'm simply saying this, that we've got the same makeup in the fossil record that we have in one of these dinosaurs. If a beetle can do it, I think a dinosaur ought to be able to. And besides, the Bible says it, I believe it. They were blowing fire. And you know, it sounds to me like Gary Larson wasn't too far off. They were smoking, just not cigarettes, right? And it also sounds a little bit like a dragon. You know what? A dragon is a word that was around when the Bible was written in English in 1600. And we find dragons all over in the Bible. There are over 250 countries around the world that have legends of dragons. Historians will tell you there must be some truth to that. In Genesis 1.21, it says that God created great sea creatures, whales or monsters, depending on your translation. The Hebrew word is tenin, translated as dragon throughout the Bible. We see in Isaiah 43.20, dragons. In Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 6, dragons, tanin, are talked about. Isaiah 27, 1 talks about a dragon in the sea. Psalm 74 talks about the dragons in the waters. Could that be a chronosaur or a plesiosaur type creature? You bet. Could the flying serpent of Isaiah chapter 30 be something like a pterodactyl or a pteranodon? Why not? Well, here's the next question. Did dinosaurs go on Noah's Ark? Well, let me guys ask you a couple of questions here. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. How many of you believe that kangaroos lived in the Middle East? Yeah, they're only in Australia today, right? Well, let me ask you this then. How many of you believe Noah's Ark is a real boat? Now, remember, pastor's watching. Okay, yeah. We believe Noah's Ark is a real boat. Let me ask you this then. How many of you believe that two of every kind of animal went on that boat like the Bible says? Okay, how many of you believe that two of every kind of animal that got on the boat got off of the boat on Mount Ararat? Good. How many of you believe that a kangaroo is a kind of animal? Ah, you're starting to pick up on this. How many of you believe that kangaroos lived in the Middle East? Yes, guys, they got on the boat They got off of the boat. If they were alive today, they'd be making t-shirts. God said take two of every kind of animal on the ark. Not just, you know, most kinds, all kinds. Every kind. A dinosaur is a kind. It's that simple. But you know there are reputable people like Billy Graham. When he was asked this question, did dinosaurs go on Noah's ark? He gave this answer, no. Noah's ark apparently did not include dinosaurs. Why? Because dinosaurs and similar ancient creatures that we only know from fossils were extinct by the time God created the garden. You hear what he's saying? He's saying Jesus Christ is a hoax. Now, guys, I believe he is a brother in Christ, but I disagree with his theology. I know he doesn't believe Jesus is a hoax. But you know something? That's what he says here. Why? Because he's saying that dinosaurs and other ancient creatures went extinct by the time God created Adam and Eve. That means they died before Adam and Eve. My Bible says it was Adam and Eve that caused death to come into the world. 
Guys, you can't combine these two ideas. You see, if Adam and Eve didn't bring death, what did? Well, evolution says it's just natural. It's just something that happens. Well, if death is natural, it's just something that happens. Why did Jesus come to die on the cross for you? He could have stayed up in heaven and said, Thou art forgiven and saved himself a lot of trouble. But he couldn't. He had to come and die, take the punishment that you deserve because of sin on himself in order that you might be forgiven. Guys, I think we throw out that Jesus loves you, Jesus forgives you way too much. Jesus doesn't just forgive you. He died in order that you might be forgiven. See, he had to pay the penalty. Somebody had to pay it, so he took it for you. But if evolution is true, then his death has no meaning. It has no purpose. He could have stayed up in heaven and saved himself the trouble. Can you see the problem here? Now, our liberal theologians try and get around this, and they'll say things like this, Brian, you're misinterpreting death. You see, it was physical death that was there before Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve only brought about spiritual death. You know, God said to Adam, the day you eat of the tree, you're going to die. Well, Adam lived to be 930 years. How come he didn't die that day? Now, do you think your children, your grandchildren, sitting there in the college you know, classrooms are going to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You bet they are. And because of it, they're leaving the churches today. Guys, it was physical and spiritual death in the Garden of Eden. The reason Adam lived to be 930 years is the Hebrew, and even your footnotes will tell you this, it doesn't say you're going to die that day. It says dying you will die. That's the meaning of the Hebrew word. In other words, it's like you cut a branch off of a tree, you lay it on the sidewalk, dying it's going to die. Adam began to die that day. That's why he only lived to be 930. And besides, dust you are, dust you shall return sounds a little bit physical to me. But they'll quote things even in the New Testament and say in 1 Corinthians it tells us, as well as in Romans, you know, by one man death came into the world and so death passed upon all men. See, it says men, nothing about animals because animals could die before. There was physical death in the world before Adam and Eve. Well, let's run with this heresy for a moment, okay? Let's say it was spiritual death. Then when we go to 1 Corinthians 15, it says by one man... Adam, death came into the world. Spiritual death, we'll say. So also by one man, Jesus, comes the resurrection of the dead. What kind of resurrection must it be then? Spiritual. There's only a spiritual resurrection if it was a spiritual death. No, we're seeing that God is saying... By one man, spirit, or physical death came, so also by one man, Jesus, there will be a physical resurrection of the dead. And that's the whole point of that verse in the context, verse in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He's trying to prove the physical resurrection of the dead. Guys, you cannot believe in millions of years and believe that Jesus' death had any meaning in our life. His blood is pointless if the earth is millions of years old. Pointless. But these guys are always using the Scriptures to try and, try and twist things around. They'll even say, oh, you can't tell me a day of creation is 24 hours. How could you get day one, two, and three, evening and morning, 
when the sun isn't even there until the fourth day. Hmm? You don't need the sun for an evening and a morning. You just need a flashlight, any source of light. It's the earth's rotation that gives you an evening and a morning. That simply means that on day one, God put the earth in rotation. And we don't need a sun. Jesus, the light of the world, was already there. Just like in heaven, we see there is no sun because the Lamb gives us light. It's very simple. If you hear these things where they try and use the Bible to discredit a young earth, you need to use all of the Bible in context because if you twist it in Genesis, it will contradict someplace else. And frankly, I'm not so worried about how dinosaurs got on the ark. I'm more worried about the woodpecker, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah. People say, well, how could dinosaurs fit on Noah's ark? They'd be too big. Well, you don't realize how big Noah's ark is. It's a huge boat. It is so big. Do you know that Noah's Ark would hold 522 railroad cars, each holding about 240 sheep? That means Noah's Ark could take about 125,000 sheep on it. Well, scientists said that there was about 18,000 kinds of animals years ago. So if you take two of every kind of animal, that's 36,000. We're going to double it again just to be kind. That's 72,000. Let's add some more just for the clean animals. We'll say about 75,000 animals had to go on Noah's Ark, which is very generous. Meaning, only 60% of the Ark would be filled with animals, leaving the other 40% for the eight people and the supplies that went along. Plenty of room on this boat to take all the animals. That 18,000 kinds that scientists estimated, that's been years ago. Some of that was taken from this book called Noah's Ark, a feasibility study years ago. But newer information with genetics has shown us that it is far, far less than that. When the Bible says a kind, what is a kind? Well, first of all, it's something that can reproduce after itself. But as far as how that fits in with our modern day classifications, it seems to best fit with a family. Do you know that there are only about 950 types of families? So 950 kinds? That means less than 5,000 animals probably went on Noah's Ark, making it even a lot more room for supplies than needed. But either way, being extremely generous, there's plenty of room. Here is a picture of a scale of Noah's Ark compared to a city block. Houses would fit into this. So I don't think dinosaurs are going to have a problem fitting on it then, are they? Not at all. Here's a railroad car giving you an idea of how big it would be compared to that. And this railroad car should be cut in half to be the same scale. Plenty of room. Not to mention, what's the average size of a dinosaur? If I took all the bones of all the dinosaurs in all the world that have ever been found, do you know what the average size of a dinosaur is? Let me tell you what evolutionists are saying. The average size of a dinosaur is about, well, this big, right? About here. Chicken to sheep size. Yeah. How come you thought they were so big then? Well, because some of them are big, but hardly any of them. Here we see Sauroposeidon next to Brachiosaur. Notice they look the same, don't they? But they got different names. One was just larger than the other. Well, you know something? I'm larger than some of you kids here. Why? Because I'm older. 
Likewise, I think the bigger one is just older. Do you know that most reptiles today, as long as they live, never stop growing? So the oldest alligator of its kind would be the largest alligator of its kind today. If dinosaurs were reptiles and they were living 900 years like humans were before Noah's flood, well, then they would grow for 900 years. I think that this Sauro Poseidon is just an older one than the Brachiosaur. By the way, they only found like two or three bones of him, but that's what they do. Isn't science amazing? Yeah. Understanding that God wanted to take animals on the ark so that when they got off the ark, they're going to have babies again and fill the earth. Is God going to take grandma and grandpa on the ark to have babies? No, he's going to take a younger, smaller, healthier teenager that's going to live for years to come. Look at these, all different names of these dinosaurs here, and they look so much the same. I think a lot of these things are just younger ones or older ones. The second one down on the left, that's probably just a baby. Underneath it, you can see the horns starting to grow. And then underneath that, the horns are getting better yet. And maybe way on top, as an adult, on the outside, those horns would start growing. And every now and then, they'll find these weird-shaped horns. Just a horn, but they make a whole thing out of it because it's got a different shaped horn. Well, guys, horns do weird things. As a matter of fact, if you would find these two things in the fossil record, and they weren't alive today, you know they'd give them a different name, wouldn't they? You bet. That's not good science. Here are some skulls out of the same skull. Look what you can get. I mean, you can change the color, the ear size. You can change the muscle structures. All kinds of differences from the same thing. And by the way, this has been done with Neanderthal as well. You wouldn't believe how many different pictures came just from Neanderthal. Same skull bones. Really, out of the hundreds of types of dinosaurs, there's probably less than 50 types of dinosaurs that were out there. Matter of fact, Jack Horner, the leading evolutionist here, just in November of 2009, came out and said here that CAT scans are showing that these are probably same species at different stages of life. You know, we've been saying this for over 20 years. Way to catch up there, to be a leading evolutionist. Now, there is no question that some of these are larger dinosaurs. There's no question we've found large dinosaurs, but they're so rare that when you do find them, you're rich. Sue, the big T-Rex, think they sold her for like $12 million because it's so rare to find these dinosaurs that are large like that. Most of the ones that we find are, are just small. But there are some big ones. Speaking of Sue, it's kind of interesting. Uh, not too long ago, I was invited to go speak in Faith, South Dakota. That little town out in the middle of nowhere is where Sue was found pretty much. So they decided that they were going to pay $70,000 to the Chicago Museum of Natural History to pay them uh, basically to rent Sue back. They were hoping that it would bring in some revenue to this little town as people would come in to see Sue. Well, they got the bright idea that maybe we ought to let you know, people be educated rather than indoctrinated. You know, get both sides of an issue rather than just one side. So they invited me as a creationist to come in and speak next to Sue to give the alternative explanation. Well, everything's lined up. About two weeks before I'm supposed to show up, I get a phone call and I find out that the 
Chicago Museum of Natural History is threatening to sue the town of Faith, South Dakota if they allow a creationist to come in. What are they so afraid of, guys? Well, as I said, education is what they're afraid of. They only want to indoctrinate you, give you one side so that you can't make up your mind. Ended up they had to rent a a building across town or across the street so that I couldn't speak next to Sue. Because otherwise they were threatening to not only Sue, but pull Sue back out of there and uh, not give them a refund. So these are the kind of things that are going on. You always hear them saying, well, how come creationists don't publish in, in these journals? Well, it's not because they haven't tried. It's just that it never gets past the editor because they won't publish creation materials, things that would line up with Scripture. It's one-sided. Indeed, some are large, but the fact is we are just deeply impressed by the size of dinosaurs. You wouldn't pay 10 bucks to go to a museum to see these little lizard-sized dinosaurs, would you? No way. They give you what you want. Just because something has sharp teeth, too, by the way, doesn't mean that it's mean or that it eats meat. I can tell you as a matter of fact that they weren't mean before Noah's flood. You go read in your Bible, it says this. When Noah gets off the ark, he says, Now I will put the fear of man into the animals. The relationship you and I have today with animals did not come about until after the flood. And as far as eating meat, you know, we have actually found chlorophyll in the cracks of T. rex's teeth, suggesting it ate plants, not meat. But I ask kids all the time, what was on T. rex's menu? And they're like, oh, oh, oh. I'm afraid that the you know, little kids are about to pee their pants. They're so excited to tell me that T-Rex ate meat. That's what was on his menu. I mean, look at those teeth. That would be great to eat meat. Well, you know what? Just because you have sharp teeth doesn't mean you eat meat. Wouldn't that be great to eat something like a big pumpkin or a cantaloupe? Yeah. How about this guy here? What do you think he eats? Anything he wants to, right? Well, actually, he, he only eats leaves, and I can tell you that because he's still alive today. But if it was not alive today, and they found this thing in the fossil record, you know they'd be making horror movies out of it, wouldn't they? Yeah, it'd be going, <laughs> Problem is, it'd have to be a veggie tale horror movie. You know, Bob the Tomato, run, Larry, run! <laughs> they don't eat meat. This is not science. Science is what we can observe. So we can't tell you scientifically what T-Rex ate. Maybe he did eat meat. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. You have to be able to be there to see it. But I can tell you this. The Bible tells us in Genesis 9 that you and I, anyway, were not given permission to eat meat until after Noah's flood. I think prior to the flood, maybe some people did because they were disobeying God. But nonetheless, we weren't given permission to do so until after the flood. We were created as vegetarians. We can even see this. Despite their ferocious appearance, the sea iguanas are strict and docile vegetarians, even though they are armed with strong claws and sharp teeth. In order for something to be scientific, you have to be able to see it. You know, Job, when God was questioning Job, God says, were you there when I created this? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Because if you weren't, you have no right to speak. And that's what's exciting to me is God was there and he left me a record called the Bible. You kids, if your you know, teachers start talking about millions of years, you know, logically we ought to be able to raise our hand and say, excuse me, were you there? And they'll say, well, no, I wasn't, but were you there? And you could say, no, but uh, I know somebody who was. He even left me a record. It's called the Bible. Are you interested? 
We have a record. We've got something to go on. Now, getting back to what happened to the dinosaurs, I believe from a creation perspective, we do have an answer. It is a combination of things again. First of all, I think the harsher climates after the flood were hard on them. Ice Age and whatnot. Second thing, I believe that they were probably hunted for sport, much like we would hunt a bear today. I mean, who of you hunters out there wouldn't be walking a little taller the day after you bagged one of them things? Yeah, that would be hanging up on your wall if your wife would let you. <laughs> yeah. And I think the third thing is, is they were probably hunted for food, just like we'd hunt a bear or a deer or something like that. Because when Noah gets off the ark, God also says this to Noah. Now, I give you permission to eat meat. I think those dinosaurs said, Hey, we're meat. And Noah said, I know. I mean, think of the drumsticks on them babies, you know? Yeah. I think they would have been doing that. Noah wouldn't have been eating them because it would have been an unclean animal. But it wasn't long. And like I said, people would have been disobeying God. And the the final thing is, I think that they were freaking people out. I don't care if it was a little one-foot-tall T-Rex that came into my yard. I'd kill it. You know, and even if I thought it was cool, my wife would make me kill it. Yeah, and that's exactly what we see throughout history, is these things were freaking people out. They were scaring you. And they would get killed because of it. Now, by the way, do you know that we have found partially fossilized dinosaur bones many times now with blood cells still in them? Blood cells aren't supposed to last over 10,000 years. So what are they doing in something that supposedly went extinct 65 million years ago? Impossible. I brought this up at a debate against a biology professor. Here's his response. Well, no big deal. I guess we were wrong. I guess blood cells can last 65 million years. What? Science isn't the problem, is it? It's the interpretation of the science. If you can be as unbiased as possible, you look at this evidence. Is this evidence of evolution or a young earth in the Bible? At least, at the very least, the dinosaurs only died a few thousand years ago. Yeah. You know, Egyptian mummies that are only a few thousand years old show detail like what we see in these bones. And even some of the icemen found up in the, in the Alps. So originally they thought, well, this must be contamination. Well, that has been ruled out. There is no question that these have been blood cells. No question. You know, people write me letters as well all around the world. They say, you're a sponge brain idiot. That's a quote. <laughs> they say, you've got to believe in evolution. Look at Darwin's finches. Some of them have big beaks. Some have little beaks. That's evolution. Well, I get to write back and say, hey, look around you. Some of you have big beaks. Some of you have little beaks. That's not evolution. It's a, what we call a variation among a kind, variety among a species. Let me explain to you how this works using a jar of marbles. If I would have a jar of marbles, a full jar representing the full gene pool in the original dog kind of animal. We'll say the original dog was say, a wolf. If I would reach into that jar and mix up the information, same genetic information, just rearranged, I could get something like a coyote. If I would reach into that jar of marbles and take out four or five marbles, lose genetic information, I could get something like, well, the fox. Put my hand in there again, take out a whole handful of information and get something like the Great Dane. Take a bunch more information out till you have hardly anything left in this dumb animal. Well, then you get the poodle. (laughs) The point is, is it's rearranging information. It's losing information. 
At no point in time can I take a marble out of my cat jar, stick it into my dog jar, hopefully getting a half cat, half dog dat, because the jar would break. This is what evolution requires, though, to add new information into a species to increase its complexity. We don't see that in nature, in laboratories, in the fossil record, nothing. But that's what evolution requires. Do you know that he used to tell you that you were 96.3% genetically identical to a chimpanzee? Yeah. When I first heard that, I thought, oh, maybe there is something to evolution. No. The difference of a millionth of a percent, just three nucleotide difference, is fatal? Yeah. So you could be 99.9% genetically identical to a chimpanzee, and it would mean nothing. Did you know a rain cloud's 100% water? A watermelon's 97% water. Only 3% difference. Maybe they're related. Hey, wait, the missing link. A snow cone, 98%, right there. A jellyfish is 98% water, too. I'll bet you could take a snow cone and a jellyfish, take a bite out of them, couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, try it sometime. I think you'll be surprised what difference a small percentage can make. And by the way, because of better DNA studies, they've now dropped it down. In some cases, like uh, on the mitochondria, I think it's 70% and 86% otherwise. So we're even astronomically further away from a chimpanzee. They only give you the similarities. They don't like to talk about the differences. If you compare our cytochrome C, we're closest to a sunflower. But we don't see them running around saying, my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was a flower child. If you compare our heart... We're closest to the pig. They didn't do ape transplant, you know, heart transplants when they were initially doing heart transplants. They were pig ones, huh? So why aren't we saying great-great-great-grandfather was a porker? We should be doing that rather than saying he was a monkey because they only pick out the similarities that support evolution, ignore all the things that don't support it. That's why. No, guys, we are created in the image of God, and God is indeed no monkey. The Bible says things reproduce after their kind. What's a kind? Something that can reproduce after itself. I mean, how many of you, your parents here had children? <laughs> Almost all of you. For the rest of you, that's a different presentation. Guys, when your mother had a child, she didn't, you know, have to sit there on her chair going, oh, I hope this one doesn't have wings. She knew. She knew what she was going to have, a humankind. Yeah, things that reproduce after themselves. You know, rabbits, they, they're known for how fast they reproduce. Lots of rabbits. Here's Noah, as a matter of fact, on the ark. He's looking at these rabbits and saying, you've been a naughty rabbit. I'm only supposed to have two of you. Think about it. All these millions, billions, really, of rabbits that have been born throughout history, don't you think just once... Throughout all those rabbits, just once we should have gotten a cabot? But we don't, do we? No, no cabots. Now, in Nebraska, we do crazy stuff with corn, but we've never gotten a corn cob and a banana peel that looks like a watermelon. It's just corn, producing more corn kind. We maybe get different colors of kernels of corn or sizes of kernels, but nonetheless, it's kernels of corn. We have crossed a zebra and a horse that gave us a zorse. A zebra and a donkey gave us a zonkey. I think that means a horse and a donkey might give us a honky, but I'm not sure. Actually, this is true, guys. We have crossed these things. 
Tigers and lions, you know, ligers and stuff like that. What that tells me is that these are of the same kind of animal. God didn't have to take a zebra, a horse, and a donkey on Noah's Ark. He only had to take the original kind, and from them we get the variety that we have today. You can put the stripes on, you can leave the stripes off, but it's still a horse kind. You never get this happening, though, do you? No. If evolution is true, this is what we ought to see. But we don't see it happening. And the dogs, I mean, we have messed up the dog. Look what we've done to these dumb things. Isn't that awful? I mean, by crossing all of these things, getting different species. Look at this one. A one-pound, four-inch dog. What is that good for? Nothing. You see all these pretty girls walking around, and they're so proud of these things. It's like, what are you proud of? Your purse stinks. You know? You put the dumb thing down, it just starts shaking because it knows it's going to die. A cat. It's ridiculous. Now, for you dog lovers out there, though, I am told that this little dog can actually kill a Great Dane, a big one. No, it really can. It gets caught in their throat. (laughs) Chokes to death. (laughs) Anyway, guys, bottom line is you can get big dogs and little dogs, cute dogs, ugly dogs, furry dogs, bold dogs. But guess what? They're dogs. You never get this happening, do you? No. And we're still waiting for the watch fog, but hey, that hasn't happened either. I'll tell you what, I for one am glad that evolution is not true. I mean, if it were, can you imagine how scary it would be for you women to have children? Especially those women in Arkansas, you know? Yeah, they could have a bunch of hillbillies running around. Half Hillary, half Bill. Hillbilly. Yeah, but that doesn't happen either, does it? Anyway, I just want to show you here, even if dinosaurs were large. The large ones went on Noah's Ark. Even they would fit easily into this boat. Here's just a a scale picture showing you the size. But like I said, I don't think the big ones did go on there. But you know, in 1977, there was a Japanese fishing vessel that pulled this up out of the water. What is this? We don't know. It looks kind of like a plesiosaur type of creature. In Japan, they even made postage stamps out of this thing. And They took five pictures, flesh samples. There was a marine biologist on board. They caught it in their nets about 900 feet below the surface. So, uh, you know, it could have fallen out of a glacier. We don't know. But it was oozing things out. It was disgusting. They thought it was going to contaminate the fish, their their money that they had. So they threw the thing back overboard. And uh, later they tried to go find it again because the scientist said, You did what? You threw it overboard? Are you crazy? Well, couldn't find it. Anyway. Answers in Genesis, you know, they'll say don't use this because there's, in America, what we've said this thing is, is a rotting shark. Yeah, a rotting shark. Guys, there was a marine biologist on board, like I said. And he says this was not a rotting shark. He's seen rotting sharks, a basking shark. It wasn't. He even says that... uh, you know, these flesh samples that were taken, they did comparisons. I've read long articles on, on why they think this is a shark and so on. And bottom line is, it's got similar amino acids, but then there are a number of differences. So, I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. I'll let you guys decide. But the bottom line is, for me, I don't believe that it's a broading shark. Maybe it did just fall out of a glacier. You know, we can't keep track of what's extinct on land, let alone what's in the oceans. So who knows what could be out there? But nonetheless, you know the information is there, and you can go out and find some more if you want. But even in the African Congo, there's 70 million acres of unexplored swampland, and they have a creature they call Mokila Mimimba. 
and showing a picture of an apatosaurus dinosaur, they say, I don't know. All I know is, as I said, we can't keep track of what's extinct on land. 70 million acres of unexplored swampland. National Geographic has sent out uh, people trying to find this thing. And they, they made it a week without losing their equipment, getting sick, all those kinds of things. We just don't know. Showing a picture of an apatosaurus dinosaur, like I said, though, the natives think that it's Mokila Mimimba. Missionaries have claimed that they've eaten Mokila Mimimbas before. National Geographic did this article on it, and they basically they, they got a, a recording that didn't match up, a voice recording that didn't match to anything we know of. Hippopotamuses, rhinos, elephants. We don't know what it is, but that's all they got, and it's a rather poor recording at night. So who knows what could be out there? I'll tell you this, though, we also have the Ica stones in Peru. How could they draw these things had they not seen them? You might hear that, oh, these are just recent carvings. Well, there's calcite that has built up over top of the engraving, proving it could not be a recent carving. I mean, it looks just like a T-Rex and a Triceratops, even a Quetzalcoatlus in cave art there. You can see the wings and the, the head there, the legs coming down. Or here's this one. It looks like a man is riding a dinosaur being led by a rope. Hey, if they weren't mean before Noah's flood, I'd have tried pterodactyl airlines, wouldn't you? You bet. So, again, who knows? But there are thousands of these kinds of things. It's consistent with other things we see as well. This one here, it looks like the man's trying to cut the head off of the dinosaur with a, a type of knife there. A sketch to help you see it a little bit better. We have an urn from Turkey. This is 530 B.C. And it looks just like man and dinosaurs there living together, a sea kind of creature. It's kind of interesting. He's trying to put a hook in its mouth. Leviathan in Job 41, it says, can you put a hook in its mouth? The answer was kind of, no, you don't want to. In an Egyptian palette, this is from 2000 B.C. Now, I know it says 3000 here, but that's because of secular dating. You look at my DVD on uh, the pharaohs or archaeology, you will see that it's about 2000 B.C., and that all fits. But long-necked dinosaurs necking, that's what they call it. Even giraffes do that today. When they wrap their necks around each other, that's called necking. But they have ropes around their necks here as well. I'd say people lived with dinosaurs. We have this mask on the side of it. It looks like stegosaurus dinosaurs. Here is another type of vessel with the handles looking just like dinosaurs. We have from the Han Dynasty, which is 206 B.C. to 220 A.D., these bronze sculptures that look just like dragons or dinosaurs. They look just like a velociraptor in some cases, just like what we see in the fossil record. But again, this is long before we knew dinosaurs existed. I'd say people lived with dinosaurs. Here's another little vessel, kind of a, a tray type thing where it looks like the handle looks just like dinosaurs. And there you can see the bones that we have found in the fossil record. What we've made out of them is very close to what it looks like on this vessel. Very similar. There's a Cambodian temple. And on the door of the temple there by the arrow, you see all these different animals are carved into it. You've got things that look like you know a gazelle or a baboon and an ostrich. 
But then you've got this Stegosaurus. And it looks just like them. How, why would they you know, draw just something that didn't exist and all the others do? I led tours to Israel. And, and when we go to Israel, one of the places we take you is to Sapporo. This is a town that was being built when Jesus was a boy. And very good chance, Jesus being a carpenter, he spent some time here. But they'll take you to this room, and there's this whole huge floor, probably 25 feet long, that's this beautiful mosaic. And they call her the Mona Lisa of the Middle East because there's a picture of a woman where the eyes follow you wherever you go in this mosaic. It almost looks like a photograph. It's so amazing. But way off in the corner on the backside where there's no lights shining on it, no sign pointing to it, there's this. It looks like a man with a rock trying to throw it on top of a dinosaur here. Guys, I'd say people lived with dinosaurs. We even have an, an Indian blanket taken off of a mummy. That It's a leather blanket, all tattered up here. It looks just like dragons or dinosaurs on it, doesn't it? Just like them. In the Grand Canyon, we have this. Now, they don't know what it is because there's also pictures of stick people and things like that with it. And everybody knows dinosaurs didn't live with people. So why would we tell you that this is a dinosaur? Well, guys, it looks like a dinosaur to me right out of their own books. But they can't admit this. There's so much evidence showing you man and dinosaurs together, but they won't admit it because of their worldview, their secular, humanistic, evolutionary worldview. Even in Utah, National Bridges Monument, there is what is a striking resemblance to a dinosaur. Yeah, I'd say it's a striking resemblance. I have here it kind of outlined. I will remove that outline for you. You can see it looks like a dinosaur. Here's a sketch of it. We even have in England from the 4th century what looked like long-necked dinosaurs wrapping their necks around again, necking, this mosaic. Even in Bishop Bell's tomb on a sword, it looks like these long-necked dinosaurs, even with little bony kind of things on their tails, like has been found in the fossil record. These are long before we knew of dinosaurs, and they're identical to what it looks like we're finding. Even the Babylonian cylinders. Here's an impression from the cylinder. Babylon, you know, this is like 580 B.C. Marco Polo, he lived in China for 17 years. He recorded that the Chinese emperor raised dragons to pull their chariots in parades. We have the legend of Siegfried slaying a dragon. The Viking ships from the things that they saw. You mean they just made this kind of thing up? It even looks like some of them have harnesses on them. Guys, I could give you an hour of this kind of stuff alone. There is so much evidence showing you dinosaurs living with humans through history, the fossil record, archaeology. Here's a postage stamp from Bulgaria showing you their what they call legends of man and dinosaurs together. You've got the Russian medallion from their legends, which I believe are true historical accounts. We have the Babylonian cylinder, again, 600 B.C. Even St. George, a Christian man, is recorded as killing one in 275 A.D. Rescuing a village. We have Alexander the Great. He reported in his diary that his men killed a dragon in a cave, 326 B.C. We don't believe anything Alexander the Great said, do we? 
Uh, excuse me, yes, we do. But we just want to ignore this. You can go to a Chinese restaurant, and I think there's evidence that dinosaurs lived with people. At a Chinese restaurant, you see their little zodiac that's on their little placemats. And they've got you know things like a, a horse, a monkey, a dog, pigs, ox, rabbit. And then they you know, have all these 11 real animals, but they decided to throw in a mythological dragon. No, I believe that's because they knew they were real. And Marco Polo saw it. Very easy to understand if you have a biblical mindset. You can go to Glen Rose, Texas, along the Paluxy River. We have found a number of things. A trilobite, according to evolution, is one of the first things to have ever evolved about 500 million years ago. That means anything you find with it, got buried with it, should be the same age because it lived together. Well, that's a problem because do you know that along with this so-called 500-million-year-old trilobite was found a 105-million-year-old dinosaur footprint, Acrocanthosaurus. What is something 500 and 105 million years old doing together? That shouldn't happen. Unless, of course, the Bible is true. Sea creatures on day five, land animals on day six. They were created just 24 hours apart. It makes sense. And by the way, the trilobite, for being the first thing to ever evolve, it has an extremely complex eye. There's great design in that thing, and we can even see that from the fossils, let alone the living thing. And there's even kind of type of species of trilobites still alive today even. So uh, this is not one of the first things to have ever evolved. That's the wrong interpretation, the wrong worldview to interpret the evidence. It gets worse though. They found an 8 million year old saber-toothed tiger footprint with this thing. It wasn't supposed to be around until 8 million years ago. And it was 6 feet tall. By the way though, we do find big things in the fossil record. And that atmosphere that we described at the beginning in a hyperbaric chamber explains why. Do you know that we have found cockroaches in the fossil record that are a foot long? Huge insects have been found. Yeah, those kind of cockroaches, it's not the cockroach that runs when you turn the light on. <laughs> yeah, that would freak me out. We have even found dragonflies with wingspans five feet long even. I think that's why they didn't drive cars. Can you imagine driving along? Yeah, windshield wiper's not going to take care of that one. By the way, do you know what the last thing is that goes through a bug's mind when it hits the windshield? It's rear end. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we even have here uh, grasshoppers as big as cats. Can you imagine the spit those things would have? We even have buffalo with 12-foot horn spans standing 10 feet tall. We even have cattails that stand 60 feet tall. That sounds kind of like a cherry tomato plant, doesn't it? My daughter can't even get her arms around the fossils of them. These are big. Eight-foot-long centipedes have been found. Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> even way up in the mountains where oysters live on Mount Everest, right? Uh, yeah, they don't live there, but they're found there. Way up top, over 500 fossilized giant oysters. They weigh about 660 pounds, some of them 11 and a half feet wide. What are they doing up in the mountains? Well, that speaks of a flood, not evolution and things dying in the oceans. Look at this one. See how it's closed up? 
That's how we find them in the fossil record, closed up. That speaks of rapid burial because today when things die, they open up. They get scavenged, eaten. The muscles relax. That's not how they're found. So these things didn't just die in an ocean. They were buried quickly. We even find huge human footprints found with dinosaurs. Now, by the way, this is a woman's footprint. During the excavation, they realized it was headed right towards the mall. Actually, more scientifically speaking, because it has a narrow toe and a narrow heel, forensic experts would say that this is a woman's footprint. With these footprints, I want you to know, I would not bring these up in a debate against an evolutionist, okay? Because there are some forgeries that are out there. There's no question about it. And so this is the kind of evidence that you do need to be a little bit careful with. I want you to go and do your own research, come up with your own interpretation. I've been there, I've seen some of these things, and there is no question that there are human and dinosaur footprints found together. Do you know that there are evolutionists who patrol the Paluxy River, and they will chisel out anything that's starting to come up that looks like it could be a human footprint? Yeah. Matter of fact, when I was in Texas here uh, speaking, we went and we saw these things, and we went to Dinosaur State Park. They used to even have signs there, I've, I've been told, that pointed out where the human footprints were years and years ago. But of course, those have long been taken down. But I asked some of the park rangers there if there were any dinosaur and human footprints contemporary anywhere in the same matrix, the same ground. And here were their answers. One guy said, no. Another guy said, well, there was a place down the road that claimed there was the uh, Creativity Museum for Creation Museum. He said, you know, we had a guy come check it out. Was another response. It, it appeared that a dinosaur put its foot down, failed to follow through with its forward motion, and then backed up, making it appear as if it was a human footprint. A lot of different answers. It doesn't seem like they've got their story straight. Then I went to the gift shop and asked a lady behind the counter, and she said, if you go, and she whispered exactly where I had already been to see these things. I believe there are human and dinosaur footprints. Again, you go check it out on your own. There's no question there are forgeries. So be careful about the evidence you're using, but you check it out. Nonetheless, by the way, do you know that the TMJ in a woman is worn out twice as much as it is in a man? You guys know why that is, don't you? You want to tell her why that is? You're going to make me do it? All right, fine. Because a woman talks twice as much. Yeah, but, well, I know you women, before you get upset, though, you know why that is, don't you? Yeah, because a man has to be told everything twice, right? Yeah, I mean, it's very biblical. You know, Samuel, Samuel, Noah, Noah. You know, God has to tell us things twice all the time. Guys, where would we be without women, you know? Maybe in the Garden of Eden. Anyway, uh, just seeing if you're awake there. <laughs> Guys, here's the thing. We do find along that Paluxy River, like I said, you can go see it. Some of these footprints go side by side. Others, we see the human stepping inside the dinosaur footprint. You know, kind of like a, a child might walk in their father's footprints. In some cases, they've gone into the riverbank. We've removed the riverbank, and we see both trails continuing, proving it could not be a recent carving. So there are some legitimate things out there. I really believe that, but it's just not the best evidence that we as Bible-believing Christians have to use against evolution. 
There's plenty of other good stuff. They certainly do look human, though, don't they? Here's a cast. It looks much more human than even the Laetoli footprints that have been found. So uh, they are large, but don't let that size bother you. You can see that this one here has been cut in half, cut across. The reason they did that is to look at a cross section of it because to show that this was real. You see, when you put pressure points down on things, there's calcite that builds up over the top of that. Under black light, you can see those things. And at first, you can see kind of on the main part, it's cut across because they were showing that, yes, it was, it's real. They thought it was a dinosaur footprint, but then people carved toes in it. So they cut across the toes to show pressure points even in the toes as well. They had strides six to seven feet. That's a big human being. But don't let that bother you. We have found a skeleton nine foot eight inches tall of a human being in Indiana in 1879. You know, the Roman Emperor Maximinus, according to historical records, was eight foot six, the largest Roman emperor. We even see a skeleton that was 10 foot tall found in Nevada in 1931. A 12 foot tall skeleton was found in California in 1883. There's no question there were large people. Another 12 foot tall one was found in Arizona. A man had six toes, just kind of like that one in the Bible. Look at this one though. This is a thigh bone found near Egypt. This man stood about 14 feet tall. That's a big dude there. I wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley. Any alley. Here is a friend of mine, Joe Taylor. He has got a museum in Crosbyton, Texas. A great paleontologist. He has a scale model of it here on a picture showing you how big this guy would have been. There were giants. But every time I bring this stuff up, people say, Oh, I don't believe it. It couldn't be. Why not? Because you're not thinking biblically, guys. You're not thinking biblically. Think about it. Goliath was huge. He was almost 10 feet tall. And he had four brothers that were huge. The Bible records all of them dying. I frankly think that's why David picked up five stones to symbolize all five of that family was going to get wiped out. But in our day and age, we've got nine foot, and I think that's been beat now. Large people. Now, you may see things like this coming across internet emails where you've got these 25, 30-foot people. Don't be fooled by that. These are hoaxes. Photoshop. You've got to remember that there are limits genetically to what can happen. And frankly, I think that 14-foot tall, that's the maximum that you'd ever be able to get. I don't think you're going to get anything bigger. I, don't think mo I think that was out of the ordinary. But I believe a lot of 10-foot Eight-foot-tall people, I believe that was pretty common among some of these Nephilim. You know, the Bible says when the Israelites went in to spy out the promised land, they came back and said, we're not going in there. We look like grasshoppers in their sight. Og in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, it says he had a bed 13 feet long. There's no question there were giants. You just have to think biblically. Here is a thumb bone by the arrow, just that one bone compared to the one we found in the fossil record. Looks like a giant to me. You know, if a cubit was the distance of the tip of the finger to the elbow, depended on the king how big the cubit was. Maybe Noah, you know, given the dimensions of the ark and everything, maybe Noah said this to his son, Hey, Shem, I need another tree for the ark. 
okay, Dad. Well, I don't believe that's true because actually these larger people, according to the Bible, were always evil, ungodly. But we have found even in archaeology cities built for huge people, the chairs, the tables, the doorways, everything large. They were large people, guys. The Bible says it as well. That should be all we need. But, you know, it doesn't fit so well with evolution because we've got this, you know, monkey demand, this hi kind of idea, right? We're getting upright when, in fact, this seems to be the opposite. So it goes against evolution. They're not going to talk about it. It says in Genesis 6-4 even that the sons of God married the daughters of men and giants roamed the earth. I don't have time to get into this much here tonight, but this has a lot to do with aliens as well. Do any of you think that there could be alien life out there on other planets? You might want to get my DVD then because, guys, if you think there are aliens, you need to start thinking biblically. There are, but not the way you're thinking of them. It's just demonic. And I can show you so much evidence of this, not only through Scripture, but through history, that that's all it is, is demonic. There's nothing new under the sun. Like I said, I don't have time to get into that, get my DVD, Do Aliens Exist? But nonetheless, it says that there were giants here in Genesis 6. Not only that, but with these dinosaurs, we have found a hammer, an iron head with a wood handle, Found in Cretaceous rock. That means found with dinosaurs. Unless dinosaurs are making hammers, I'd say people lived with dinosaurs. It's even made of iron and chlorine mixed together. We don't have the technology to do that today. So one man at NASA was recorded as saying, if we could understand this, we could revolutionize metallurgy. Why? Because it's iron and it doesn't rust. We can't combine iron and chlorine together. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. But the whole thing was done this way. It's homogenous throughout. No strong and weak points. So you know what NASA says, of course, then? Aliens left it here. Guys, what else can they say? If we're finding things, and this is just one example, you'll see more coming up. If we're finding things that are so complex that we can't figure out how to do it today... And we're evolving, so we're getting smarter today. This is as good as it's ever been. The only explanation is aliens with an evolutionary worldview. But you see, the Bible says we're actually getting worse. We're getting dumber. So it fits a biblical worldview. By the way, I do hate to burst your bubbles out there, kids, but you are getting dumber. You know our SAT, ACT tests have been dumbed down three times just to get you to keep the same scores. They've changed the whole scoring system. Yeah, got documentation of it. it. They've done it so that you guys can keep the same standards. We're not getting smarter today. But it doesn't surprise me. The Bible says right here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 22, that Tubal Cain made all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Right there at the beginning, God gave us the wisdom for agriculture, horticulture, music, metallurgy, right from the start. Not a surprise. You don't get to hear about the many things that are found with dinosaurs that show human existence with them because it's called contaminated evidence. If you would find me riding on a dinosaur in the fossil record, they would say that I probably got bucked off a horse 
fell down a cave, got redeposited with these dinosaurs. But if you found me getting stomped on in the fossil record, they'd say that a meteorite probably hit the earth, caused a tidal wave to come in on land, pick up these dinosaurs and you know the bones of them, throw them on top of me. And that's why the older is on top of the younger. It's called redeposited evidence. We're not going to put in the papers that a, you know, a dinosaur was found with people because obviously it's contaminated. We know the dinosaurs didn't live with people. Well, actually, I don't. I think they did. The Bible says it. They were created on the same day. And not only does the Bible say it, but history has shown it. Archaeology is showing it. Since 1829, we have measured the electromagnetic field of the earth. It has declined by 7%. Using evolutionary uniformitarian principles, that means that if it's decaying, getting less, you go back in time, it gets more. At that rate of decay, you go back 100,000 years, you would have an electromagnetic field of a neutron star, and the earth would collapse in on itself. That means the earth could not even be 100,000 years old, let alone the 4.6 billion they're trying to tell you it is. And by the way, in by the year 10,000 A.D., it should cease to exist. And there are so many common sense things like this. Did you know the moon is moving away from us 4 centimeters a year about? That's what NASA says. So that means 5 years ago it was about 20, inch, 20 centimeters closer. Four, almost 4 centimeters a year. It moves away. So that means about a million years ago, we've got some big problems. That's really going to screw up the tides, isn't it? Not to mention, maybe that's what happened to the dinosaurs, at least the tall ones. They got mooned. Up! No. So many common sense things like that. My DVD, Scientific Evidences of a Young Earth, will go through many more. Uh, explanation showing you there's no way this earth is as old as they say it is. Impossible. Well, you go back 6,000 years, we would have a very good world. A very good pre-flood existence. It would increase the electromagnetic field about 10 gauss. And when we do so today, we see wonderful things. As a matter of fact, you know that if I would get bit by a rattlesnake, I could take this thing here. It's a stun gun. 36,000 volts of DC current here. If I wanted to, you know, if I got bit on the wrist, I could take this thing here, stick it by the bite, again perpendicular, third time because it felt good, and go home. Because rattlesnake venom is proteins and enzymes chemically bonded together. Electricity breaks the chemical bond. It allows your body to take in the protein, and it's good for you. You can go and read in the June and July issue of Outdoor Life, 1988, 11 pages dedicated to this. A farmer gets stung by a bee. He's allergic to bee stings. And his chest begins to tighten up. But in his haste, he trips over the electric fence. And he realizes that he's starting to feel better. He doesn't have to go to the hospital anymore. Or we have, uh, you know, a dog that gets bit by a rattlesnake. And so they hook it up to the jumper cables of a car. You know, know, once is probably fine. The other one was for me. I don't know if he comes to the same name after that or not, but he's okay. I bet he doesn't chase cars. Again, that's not the most credible source, though. But the Oklahoma State Medical Journal also speaks of this, and it says it is a legitimate thing. 
Here is the conclusion of what they say in that Oklahoma State Medical Journal. High volt, low amp, direct current shock appears to be an effective, basically safe, mildly uncomfortable first aid emergency measure or supplement to conventional therapy for venomous bites and stings of all kinds. It works. I've had doctors and audiences who have never heard of it, others who have used it. Guys, bottom line, you can take human flesh, stick it in a test tube with snake venom, it eats it up. Zap the, the, the venom, put the flesh in, it doesn't eat it up anymore. There are tests that have been done on this. Creation Evidences Museum in Glen Rose, Texas, has taken a hyperbaric chamber that we discussed before, altered the electromagnetic field to what it should be 6,000 years ago, and he has fruit flies that were living 10 times longer, insects getting larger, rattlesnakes that became non-venomous in just 14 days. You see, normally, under a, a SAM, a scanning electron microscope, the, uh, the venom looks like mangled up spaghetti after it's been cooked. But after being in this chamber, that venom was straight, like uncooked spaghetti. As a matter of fact, even to the naked eye, it was completely different. Normally, it's globular, cloudy. It rolls slowly down the side of a test tube. But after being in these chambers, the venom, it's as clear and as runny as water. So there is research. By reproducing what we believe the pre-flood world was like, we can recreate what we see in the fossil record. So there is evidence to support this theory. And the canopy seems to be the best explanation of why we would have that more oxygen and more air pressure. Now I'm going to show you that this is not going to kill you here, okay? I will take this stun gun. And I will uh, get a volunteer from the audience. No, I'm just kidding. I will do this to myself. If I would get bit by a rattlesnake, I would take this thing here by the bite. I would get ready. Now, before I do this, <laughs> I want you to understand, I don't want any of you Einsteins going home saying, he did 36,000, I can do 110. Bad idea. Okay, this is low amps, high amps. 36,000 volts, yes, uh, only 110, but those amps are what count. Okay, DC current, AC current, life, possibly death. Okay, you won't impress your friends, and if you do, it won't be for long. So anyway, uh, if I would get bit by the by the uh, rattlesnake, stick it by the bite, get ready, and zap yourself. It's going to leave a couple of red marks but it's not going to kill you. It's kind of hot. Now, every time I do this, people say, oh, he didn't do it. Well, you can look. There will be red marks for about a half hour here uh, on my arms because it, it is kind of warm. But nonetheless, it's not going to kill you. You know, the things I do to entertain you guys, huh? Well, do you know that we have even found batteries near the pyramids? Yeah. They produced about 1.5 volts. It's called the Baghdad battery. Uh, I, uh, here's a diagram. In my book, Doubts About Creation, not after this. I have the actual photographs of them. The Egyptians seem to have had electricity. What is this? I don't know. Looks kind of like it's electrical, but who knows? I can tell you they did have it, though. Not only have we found the Baghdad battery, but we know that they combine metals that you need electricity to do to, to basically get the metals to combine, called electroplating. 
We know they did this stuff. They had knowledge of electricity. No question about it. Scientists today tell us that we use about 10 to 15% of our brain. Well, if that's the case, I'm operating on about 6 to 8%. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Did you notice that I took off my watch before I zapped myself with 36,000 volts? Yeah, well, it took me three watches to figure that one out. (laughs) It kept going out on me. I couldn't figure out why. I was sure grateful for Walmart's uh, return policy. One day I was sitting there when I was returning the third one. I'm thinking, you know, I've heard people have like a different kind of uh, electromagnetic field in their body. (laughs) Ah, I think this will be the last one I need to return. Yeah, kept shorting them out. But I think Adam, he'd had that figured out the first time. I believe Adam used 100% of his brain. You know, today they say, how'd we make the pyramids? How'd they make them? We don't know, but we're smarter. Do you see how illogical that sounds? We don't know, but we're the smart ones? The more we go back in time, the more we see intelligence that's beyond ours. We don't know how they did it. These are two and a half ton stones. Herodotus and all these people, they record some of the building of it. Based on what we know, and you can see this in my archaeology DVD, they were laying some of these stones, two and a half ton stones, every two minutes. That's incredible. But we don't know how it was done. I think Adam used all of his brain. You know, many of these liberal theologians, they'll say things like this again. Oh, you can't tell me a day of creation is 24 hours. How could Adam name all those animals in a 24-hour day? Well, read your Bible carefully, guys. He didn't name all the animals. He names the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the cattle. He does not name insects, arachnids. He does not name marine animals. Marine animals alone remove 95% of the species of animals. Being extremely generous... He would have to name about 2,500 animals. Because remember, he didn't name Great Dane, Chihuahua, Ugh, Poodle. He said dog. He named kinds. And I believe he was smarter. But being generous, that means he'd name about 2,500 animals. That means he could name one animal every five seconds, have a five-minute break at the end of every hour, and get them all named in less than four hours. Boy, God really overworked him, huh? No. Guys... If the Bible says it, I believe it. If there's something that you come across that seems to contradict the Bible, do me a favor, at least email the ministry so that we can give you an answer before you start doubting the Word of God because of the lies of men. No. I, and like I said, if Adam used 100% of his brain, imagine what they could do. But even if they only used 10 to 15% of their brain at their full capacity, just think what they could do. Because we're only using 6 to 8 at a small percent. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Rain Man. Uh, That was modeled after a real man named Kim Peek. He was what we call a savant. Look at this video here. Kim Peek has really earned his nickname Kim Pewter. Kim remembers everything as pure, unfiltered data, like a computer does. The real Rain Man knows 2,000 years of calendar dates, all the dialing codes and highway systems in the USA, all the historic dates in the world, and every tune he's ever heard. There are over 200 boxes worth of books stored on his brain's hard drive.
gave him the test. He gave him eight pages. He read them in 53 seconds, and two hours later had a 98.7% recall, including the page numbers. So he got them all in order. So there's something in his optical system allows him to put things in order when he's reading. I asked if I could take the same test because his brain was the only thing everybody anybody studied. It took me 23 minutes to read what he read in 53 seconds, and I had a 45% recall, which was normal. At about 16 months, it was the first time he noticed he would be able to read and enjoyed that. But when he was born, and uh, nine months, we took him for a physical recommendation of the uh, doctor, and uh, they told us that he was uh, severely mentally retarded. He would never be able to learn. He would never be able to walk. We should institutionalize him and forget about him. At four, Kim learns the first eight volumes of a lexicon by heart. He learns all of the USA's highways, phone codes, and TV networks, but still is seen as a freak. At 33, by chance, he meets the Hollywood scriptwriter Barry Morrow. Morrow immediately begins work on Rain Man. Two years later, Kim and his father Fran fly to Los Angeles. Dustin Hoffman dedicates his Oscar to Kim with the words, I may be the star, but you are the heavens. It is only through Rain Man that Kim has evolved from being a shy and unsociable memory master into an entertainer. He has answered thousands of questions in lectures, on school visits, and at research seminars. Female history students fall for Kim's charms in a matter of seconds. This is my birthday, August 5th, 1947. It was, uh, it was a Tuesday, and this year it's a Friday, and you retire in 2012 on a Sunday. And what was the best picture when she was 50? Lawrence of Arabia. That's right. Are you familiar with Rembrandt? 1606, 1669. Where was he born? He was born in Dow Holland, but lived for a time in even old New York. Was once the winter dab. How did they make? Which years did Churchill serve as British Prime Minister? 1940, 45, 1951-55. Now, who wrote the original score for the movie Dr. Zhivago? Montmartre. What is the main movie music? Somewhere, my love. When did Alfred Hitchcock live? 1899-1980. Who succeeded Charlemagne? It was Louis the Great, number one. At Salt Lake City University Music School, a special test is being held today. Mega savant Kim Peek, the inspiration for the film Rain Man, is sitting at the piano for the second time in his life. Accompanied by music professor April Greenan. Through a chance meeting with Kim, the Mozart expert April discovered that the real Rain Man also possesses musical abilities that were completely unknown even to his father Fran. Like Mozart, Kim has the rare gift of perfect pitch. He can assign every single sound to its true note. Yet Kim has never had a piano lesson. And can I tell some other things? This is a piece by Weber. It's called an invitation to a dance. That's right. <laughs> what year did he write it? In 1819, and Berlioz's version was written for a, for a performance of 
their phrase sheets as a ballet sequence. Right. 1841. Where did Berlioz live? 1803-1869. Literally within one minute, I realized he knew a lot. Within, say, ten minutes, then I was stunned. And within that first meeting, I felt I had drawn upon my entire database of knowledge, <laughs> and Kim was exceeding that. He can remember every piece of music that he heard, even when he was a little boy. Any melodic line, uh, the entrance of any instrument, uh, of course, the uh, rhythmic figures. Uh, he, so he has perfect recall, apparently, as far as I can tell, of any piece of music he's uh, ever heard. And uh, that's remarkable. Because he loves and knows classical music so well, uh, I have to not take him to, to final... Uh, performances by symphonies because if anybody makes a mistake and it can be a, an instrument uh, like a trombone or something comes in at the wrong time he'll he'll stand up and say what's the matter with it isn't that incredible he'll read in 53 seconds what it takes you 23 minutes to do his eyes read both pages at the same time I wish we could do that, but scientists say a portion of his brain works at its full capacity while the rest of it just doesn't function very well. Again, what if Adam had all of his brain working to its full capacity or even 10% of it? What could he do? You know, we have even found stones that our world's largest cranes combined can't move. But we're smarter? I don't think so. In the Smithsonian, we have these little brooches, they're called. They say they are stylized insects because they're a thousand years old, long before we knew flight. That's long before the Wright brothers. Guys, I don't know, maybe it is just an insect. All I know is, to me, it looks much more like an airplane than an insect with a front wheel. It had ailerons and wings. They put an engine in this thing, and it flies perfectly. Look at this video. Not only that to support that we could fly, but they had geoglyphs. There are no mountains around there. You can only see them from up in the air, suggesting that they could fly. Some, maybe it was a hot air balloon. I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't say. All I know is these are the mysteries that show that these people were very intelligent. These, these pictures cover miles of, of ground. Really, they had to be up in the air to benefit from it. From Babylon's law book. It says, to operate a flying machine is a great privilege. Knowledge of flying is most ancient, a gift of the gods of old for saving lives. Or China, they had Emperor Shun in the 2200 B.C. era. He constructed a flying apparatus and a parachute, they say, in the records. Emperor Chang Tang had a flying chariot made by the inventor Ki Kung Shi. 1766 B.C. Even in the Indian sacred text, they have the Shastra, which describes flight as well, kind of pictured here. We don't understand all of what this is. It's just what history, you know, the ancient records tell us. We don't know what it means, but it's interesting. In the temple here in Egypt, look at this. On the wall, you can see the circle. It's blowing up there on the bottom. What is that? It almost looks like a helicopter or a tank. 
Again, I'm not saying it is a helicopter. I'm not saying it is a tank. I don't know. These are mysteries. But it shows that there was some sort of intelligence that we just don't understand. We don't know. Even analog computers have been found, you know, around 100 B.C. Doing x-rays on these things, they have discovered it seems to probably be something that they use to track stars. They've been able to rebuild it by using x-rays to see what's inside, to look at the, what gears would be there. Even the chemistry of the ancient Egyptians is amazing. The blues that they used, they copied a stone, this stone here, and in order to copy that, it took complex chemistry, and yet they were able to do that. This is incredible technology. We even see supposed 30,000-year-old textile woven fibers from caves in the Republic of Georgia. They were dyed black, gray, and turquoise, pink even. But this is obviously not dumb people, and that's long before you know, intelligent humans are supposed to be here. Again, I don't agree that it's 30,000 years old, but that's what they're claiming. They claim 35,000-year-old flutes found in Germany. They can't explain how music evolved, let alone how the intelligence to make the, the flutes. This shows great intelligence. We find evidence of trepanning. Basically, brain surgery and the bones grew back. So we know that some of these people survived. They did amputations, it seems. Evidence of amputations without infections because the bones weren't deteriorated and whatnot, as infections would do. Even what looked like spark plugs have been found in the fossil record. Nanotechnology artifacts here as well. These are supposedly two million years old. I don't think so, you know, at least from where they were found. Clearly, this is showing man was very intelligent. It took this guy 15 years and 30 countries to find him, but he found the letters and the numbers on the wings of butterflies. This is how creative and amazing our God is. Look at the variety and the beauty that he has given us all around. These things aren't there just for no reason. They're there because it speaks of God's creativity, his power, his nature, his glory. And you know what? He loves you guys way more than even these butterflies. He has given us all these things, all these evidences around us to get to know Him better. And we keep, because of the theory of evolution, rejecting Him, denying His Word, plagiarizing His intelligence in in our own uh, technologies as we talk about in Amazing Animals. I think even art is proof that we're not evolving. Look at this, 1884. A guy took a pencil, just started in the center, and kept going around and around and around, and this is what he drew. That's art. But today, you know, I drive along the interstate, go to these colleges, and they have all these little sculptures around. You know, a little pole going through a a square, maybe a ball in there somewhere, and a triangle. And they're like, voila, art. I'm like, preschool? I learned those shapes way back then, you know? Or they take paint and throw it on the wall and spit. And they think, oh, art. No, that's not art. You want to see art? Go back in history. Go to Pompeii. You see whole murals on the wall. Lions chasing gazelles, things like that. Beautiful, wonderful stuff. That's art. I mean, the deeper you go in archaeology, guys, the more impressive things are. When we go to Bet Shean in Israel, there's 27 different civilizations. If evolution is true, the one up top ought to be the cool one. But you know where the great stuff is in archaeology? Down in the bottom. The older. Because we're not getting smarter today. We're getting dumber. The older is much 
better. I was visiting with an archaeologist in Greece. I said, do you think we're getting smarter? She said, no. Didn't even hesitate. Why? Because the things she finds are too incredible. And do you know what her specialty was? Digging up toilets. She was finding stuff in toilets that made you look dumb. Yeah, no. We're not getting smarter today. Adolf Hitler, he said this, if you tell a lie long enough, loud enough, and often enough, people will believe it. As I believe the lie of evolution has been taught long enough, loud enough, and certainly often enough, and people are believing it. It is time that we stand firmly on the Word of God to get our truth. Be proud that you're a Christian. Be proud that you can obey and listen and learn from a Word that comes from a divine Creator. One who says that he is not a man, that he should lie. You can trust his word. I'm going to leave you with this here. Remember I said that if evolution is true, millions of years is true, then Jesus' death could mean nothing. I want you to understand something. We all need Jesus. Maybe some of you here tonight are thinking that, you know, I'm a pretty good Christian. I've done well. You know, we go out on the street all the time and we ask people, you know, would you consider yourself a pretty good person? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. So if you died, where would you go? Oh, heaven. Well, why, why would God let you in? Well, because I'm a pretty good person. I, you know, I try to go to church. I try to help when people need it. I, I do this. I do that. It's a works-based righteousness. So what we do is we give them the good test. And it goes something like this. Have you ever told a lie before? Well, Sure. So, that means you're a liar, right? Yeah. Have you ever stolen anything before? Well, no. Oh, come on. You just told me you're a liar. How can I believe you? You see, if you've just taken a cookie out of a cookie jar, when mom said no cookies, that's stealing. If you took a piece of paper from a kid at school without asking, that's stealing. The value of what you take doesn't make it stealing. The fact that it's not yours, that's what makes it stealing. So, have you ever stolen anything? Well, sure. Well, let me ask you this then. Have you ever murdered? Well, no. Do you know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? He said that if you even have hate in your heart, you have murdered your brother. Have you ever had hate in your heart before? Yeah. So according to the biblical definition, you're a murderer. Have you ever committed adultery? Well, no, I'm still happily married. Well, do you know what Jesus says in Matthew 5? He says if you've ever looked with lust upon a woman... You've committed adultery with her in your heart. Guess you broke that one too, huh? Oh, yeah. So you know what? By your own admission, you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, murderous, adulterer at heart. As am I. And if God is going to judge us on the day of judgment according to those Ten Commandments, would we be found innocent or guilty? Guilty. Guys, you have all broken the commandments of God. And you may say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, then I'll give you the atheist test. That goes something like this. Do you have all the information there is to know in the entire universe? Of course not. Three quarters? No. A half of it? No. Ten percent? Sure. Which is hilarious, but we'll give it to you. Einstein said we know less than one percent of one percent. But let's give you the ten percent. That means there's 90 percent of information out there that could mean God exists that you don't know. So you can't be an atheist. The best you can be is an agnostic. You don't know if God exists or not. You don't know. 
And I'm happy with you being agnostic here because you're going to have to go home tonight and you're going to have to lay in your bed knowing that you have broken the commandments of God. And if God is real, you will go to hell unless you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is the one who came and took that punishment that you deserve because you've broken His commandments. And He took them upon His body on that cross so that you could be free. I want to leave you with this challenge. If you don't believe in God, what you know, it's going to be no skin off your back. I want you to do this. I want you to pray for the next 30 days, every day, two, three times a day. Pray that God would bring trials and tribulations into your life. I mean, hey, if you don't believe in God, it should be no big deal. Why don't you just go put it to the test? Pray to see Pray that he would bring terrible things in your life this next 30 days. I don't know, just a challenge. Why don't you try it out? Guys, I hope that this message tonight has given you some kind of answer, some kind of meat that you, you, know, you can sink your teeth into, and that when people are saying, oh, the, the Bible's wrong and science doesn't support it, you're going to be able to say, oh, no. It's just that you have the wrong foundation. You have the wrong worldview. Actually, with the biblical worldview, everything seems to fit perfectly and then you can go and tell them about the gospel of jesus christ and that we have broken his commands and we need jesus he's not just nice guys he is necessary that's why i speak on creation not because i need to prove it to anybody but because the very foundation of the gospel of jesus christ depends upon it so if i've challenged you tonight you know, I hope you'll, you'll meditate upon this a little bit. You'll think about it. If I've offended you tonight, I'm sorry. That wasn't my intent. My intent isn't to offend you. My intent is to challenge you and to love you enough to be honest that there are answers and the Bible is the word of God. It is truth. So I'll leave you with that. God's blessings. Have a wonderful evening.